Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. On April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was shot and killed in Memphis. A petty criminal named James Earl Ray was arrested. Case closed, right? James Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story. Some of the evidence, as far as I was concerned, did not match the circumstances. This is the MLK Tapes. The first episodes are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Roxanne Gay, the host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Each week I talk to an interesting person about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. We can't escape politics. Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Gonzalez, the host of SI's new podcast, Sports Illustrated Weekly. Sports Illustrated has delivered some of the best storytelling in sports for 70 years. And now that continues on our show. Each week, we'll dive deep into the best stories from around the sports world. Sports Illustrated Weekly is available every Wednesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now. 
Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to It Happens Sometimes. The podcast where it's happened, shit. Um, Garrison, Chris, no. somebody, nope. somebody, somebody, no. pick this up. This is on you. Anybody? Nope. Anybody got help? Not okay. bailing you out of this one. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what podcast this is. You've been listening presumably for months, or this is your first time listening. If so, I've probably lost you already with that bush league introduction. Jesus Christ. Um, I'm Robert Evans. This is a show about how things fall apart, and how to maybe stop them from falling apart as much. And today we're talking to some people who were in kind of the best case scenario situation for having uh, a bunch of authoritarians try to uh, uh, dominate your country, uh, by which I mean we're talking to some Chilean activists who uh, who, who won um, in as much as it's, it's possible to win in the world. Um, it's a pretty exciting situation um, happening there. I'm excited to introduce people to like what's been going on. But first, I want to introduce our guests for today. Um, y'all want to y'all want to say hello? Uh, hello. <laughs> uh, my name is Jeremiah. Uh, I'm from the United States, but I've lived in Chile for the last ten years. And I'm Stephanie. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> I'm a Chilean, and, and I'm I'm live here with with my my husband. And Hi, I'm Nicolas. Um, I'm Chilean, and I have been living here for my whole life. Yeah, so we started a, a small group uh, called Vecinos Unidos uh, to do some activism to try to get out the vote for the plebiscito uh, to try to, uh, a couple, last year, to get the um, constitution uh, approved to be voted on, and um and it was successful, so we are proud of the, the small bit of work that we did to help that happen. And so today, the Constitution is being written, and it's a very exciting time. Yeah, and I want to, let's pull back a little bit, because the last time we we talked about um, Chile on Behind the Bastards in 2019, when um, a protest that started as some, I think it's fair to say Zoomers, uh, protesting uh, a fare increase by, like, jumping fares at the, at the, the, the underground, the subway, um, was met with police doing police stuff, uh, which was met with people taking to the streets in very significant numbers, which is the thing that by now a lot more people are experienced with. But unlike kind of what happened in my country, you did it. You made them blink. And and that's what the plebiscite is, right? Like the there was an agreement made to give because Chile was still, if I'm not mistaken, governed under the same constitution that, that Pinochet had had, right? Um, yeah. And Pinochet, famously not a great guy. <laughs> um, so I wonder if you might give us kind of an overview of y'all's experience during that time, from like the start of the protests to, oh shit, we might actually get to change things at a pretty fundamental level in our country. Um, yeah, so it was an incredible time um, about exactly two years ago. So just the 18th of October uh, was just a two-year anniversary and um, as you said, it all started with um, literal high schoolers, 16-year-olds um, who were protesting a uh, 30 peso increase uh, 
which is, you know, like 20 cent increase uh, in the metro. But we, of course, have one of the most expensive metros in the world and a very low um, uh, minimum wage here. And so, as you said, they went out there and started to jump the turnstiles, but in massive groups, hundreds of them going to the metro together and all jumping um, together. And in response, uh, the government uh, ended up closing the uh, metros. And so it was this Friday night um, and we were having dinner and uh, suddenly the metros were all closed and everyone had to just walk home from work or dinner or where they were. And that was kind of the beginning of everything. And it was almost like the government brought it on themselves because suddenly there were thousands of people in the streets just because they had no other way to get home. And um, from there, uh, they, there were protests and um, the protests were met with uh, extreme police uh, oppression and water cannons and tear gas and all of that. And um, eventually it led to uh, one march, which had over a million people throughout Chile marching and um, a series of marches and protests basically every week for months. Um, and finally, uh, it came down to, uh, they announced that there would be this plebiscite and it was a vote, um, yes or no, to create a new constitution um, because uh, yes, Chile is still, th there were some reforms in uh, the early 2000s uh, to the constitution, but, um, still, uh, we live under the constitution written by Jaime Guzman, um, kind of Pinochet's right-hand man. And um, we happen to live, Nico is our good friend and also our next door neighbor. And we live about four blocks from the Plaza, um, formerly Plaza Italia. Now the protesters have deemed it uh, Plaza Dignidad. And um, so, we've been just in the middle of it. And uh, for, for a couple months, our, our whole neighborhood was like a war zone and uh, just really crazy protests every single day and, and tear gas and, and all of that. And um, it, was, it was really intense for a while. And uh, it, it still is, you know, um, last Friday, uh, we, you know, were met with tear gas and, and water cannons again. So it's, it's uh, even though the con the constitution is being written again, and the plebiscite was a year ago, but the police are still out there um, being bastards. Yeah, <laughs> I I'm curious what each of you kind of sees as the moment when, or if you, because maybe I was going too optimistic, right? Like I, I guess I'm wondering, do you think that a corner has been turned? And and if so, what was kind of the moment each of you felt that like, oh my God, we might actually, this isn't just going to be like showing up to get the shit kicked out of us. We, we're going to get some at least of what we're fighting for. Uh, what do you think, Nico? Yeah, I mean, I think that like that particular moment was when we finally went to the uh, elections, or what you call the referendum, mm -hmm. for, the, for this uh, new constitution. And we were kind of skeptic about the, the percentage of people who will approve this uh, new constitution. Uh, because uh, a few months ago or a few weeks before this uh, referendum, we have like uh, uh, polls. 
we had the polls and they were kind of 50-50. So we were kind of skeptic about, are we going to have a new constitution or not? And that the same night, I mean, the, the process is very quick. So after, I don't know, the, the, this thing closed at 6 p.m. and then you have the results like three hours later. So on the same day, we were having the, the results and it was like 80 against 20. So it was like kind of shocking. I mean, we, I, I, I think that nobody was expecting to have this kind of 80% of the, of the people in Chile were I want to, I don't know, throw to the beam the Pinochet constitution. So it was kind of like, a, I don't know, I would say like the best moment. Yeah, there's this, there's a, an American, a, 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 a deceased American um, sociologist who, who wrote an essay that I find quite influential called The Shock of Victory. And it's about how activists often fail to take advantage of of their momentum, like because they're kind of surprised at the success early on, and then they don't properly take advantage of what they have when they have it, and and you know progress gets turned back, which I think we've seen happen in the United States in the wake of of what happened here last summer. Why do you think that that hasn't happened in Chile? What do you think it is that 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 enabled um you y'all to actually keep the pressure on and and take advantage of that that moment in time, which which never. I, I guess that's what I'm impressed with the most is that you y'all did manage to to make that momentum work for you rather than kind of letting it pull you off balance. And I, I guess I'm just trying to get a handle on on how. Um, I guess for me, what I think it's lost a lot in the conversation is um, the primera linea, uh, so the first line of defense. And so you have um, a bunch of young people, anarchists, you know, just crazy young people who went out there to fight with the cops every single day. And it was really impressive. And a lot of times we, uh, I don't know, I feel like they don't get the credit they deserve because, uh, you know, they're the delinquents and mm -hmm. that, you know, we talk a lot about um, the big marches when there was a million people in the street. And, and obviously like Nico said, winning, the vote by 79% showed that it was uh, something that everyone in Chile wanted, but it, it never would have happened if it weren't for the, this small group of, of fighters who were there every single day facing tear gas and uh, water cannons and police beating them up with, uh, you know, throwing rocks and stuff like that. So I think uh, that's the main thing. It, it wasn't like once a month or even once a week. It was every single day. And they were there on the front line. And it, uh, none of this would be possible without them. That's fascinating to me because obviously things like that, groups like that existed here, like in Portland, went every night for not as long, but for not an insignificant amount of time. And it was those same. It was a lot of these kind of young anarchist frontliners who were willing to go toe to the toe with the cops every night. But you didn't have you didn't have that kind of larger, more moderate populace backing them up. And I guess one of the things I'm curious about is what was kind of the you mentioned you don't think they get the credit they deserve. Was there a broad attitude that like these people are the ones going face to face with the cops so that those of us, you know, people who are older, people who aren't in as good a shape, people who can't physically take as much abuse can still show up? Or was it I, I'm kind of curious how 
how those people represented what they were doing and how it how it was seen by most of kind of the more moderate people who still supported change around you, because that that dynamic exists in any mass protest movement. And I'm, it, it, it worked where you are. And I'm, I'm trying to get a handle on maybe how it was different than than what I saw in Portland. Uh, so now a lot of them are in jail. And yeah. um, or without one eye, so it's yeah. uh, it's really terrible because we have all these new uh, beautiful process, but um, we are without uh, really a, a complete democracy with uh, liberty with the, for this guy or or democracy for all this um, person that. Uh, Loose eyes or uh, como resultaron como heridos. Yeah, and everyone that was injured. Um, so, yeah, a lot of protests nowadays. Actually, I think today, right now, there's a protest going on um, to free the political prisoners. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there, even among, you know, Obviously, 80% of the country voted for the new constitution, so there's a lot of different uh, points of view there. But but yeah, there was division even among the left. Um, a lot of people said, you know, this is not the form of, this is not the way to protest, and we should not be violent and, you know, burning things. And, um, but, but there was a lot, I mean, you saw a lot of the opposite, where people were, were saying, just as you said, like, those out there on the front line are the reason that the older people and others can come out and feel safer to protest because the Primera Linea is kind of taking the brunt of the um, violence from the police. And that allows the, the older people and uh, those who are, are less confrontational to be out there and protest. So for me, some of, some of the most inspiring signs I remember seeing are like, folks that are 80 years old and, and they have signs that say, you know, gracias a la primera línea, you know, like, thank you to the, the frontliners who, who are taking that violence so that they are able, the others, to, to protest um, in a more peaceful way. That's such a fascinating situation to me that you've got, you've got these, these more radical frontliners who were, as you say, critical in allowing this this really groundbreaking change to occur in your society. But at the same time, things haven't changed enough that, number one, the cops who beat the shit out of them, I, I'm guessing, are still largely employed um, and, and a bunch of them are in jail. I'm, I, do you have much hope that at the very least there will be something to, like, get these people out? Or is it is that maybe a bridge? I don't know. I, I, I don't know your country, obviously, as well. You, I'm, I'm curious, that, like. Do you feel like there's much hope in pushing for that? Because it seems like, you know, those people need to be free. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of these guys who are in prison, uh, they have spent like, oh no, like 12 months in prison without any evidence. So yeah. it's only the the word of the cops against them. So after, I know, like 13 months, 14 months, they will finally get released because they have, they have no evidence. Or yeah. they could, they may find that the police they made up all the evidence, so the, they finally uh, go out. But I mean, you spend like almost a year in prison. That's yeah. To me, it's clearly like political. I mean, you're a political prisoner. Like they got they got you in prison with no evidence, without any proper process. They 
keep you in prison for a year. And who's going to pay for that? I mean, you lost a year. Yeah. Life. We're talking so far about the sacrifices made here. What do you think with this new constitution, you and your 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 fellow Chileans, what are you going to get? Like how what are the changes that that are seem to be most concrete and the ones that you think are most important? Um, I think already it's been groundbreaking. I, I, I believe it's the only constitution uh, ever to be written um, by uh, a, plur a plurality of, of women and, and also to have a uh, representation from the indigenous peoples. And uh, so it's already been very um, inspiring and groundbreaking. Um, the president of the Constitutional Convention is a uh, very inspiring um, Mapuche leader, woman. Um, and the good thing is that uh, the, the right um, it represents less than one third of the Constitutional Convention, so they don't have the power to block um, anything. Uh, as far as only by the right. So we will see, but they literally just started writing the constitution last week. So yeah, yeah, it's still, but that's, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a significant, is there a kind of a broad agreement that one of the things that needed to happen here was a redress of grievances between the indigenous people um, and the, and the, the state? Because it, it sounds yeah. like that's a significant chunk of what's, what's been already agreed upon just by like how this is coming together. Yeah, so, uh, well, Nico could probably tell a lot mm -hmm. more about this than I could, but um, there's a big deal with uh, the United uh, with the indigenous people in the South and the uh, government um, basically waging war against the indigenous people. Actually, uh, two weeks ago, Pinera, the current right-wing president, um, declared a state of emergency in the South and he just extended it for 15 more days. So we have the military in the South um, and they are, you know, with the tanks and attaching, attacking the, um, the Mapuche and other indigenous people there. And uh, so, yeah, a big aspect of, of Chile right now is the, the, the fight between and, and the oppression of the government uh, against the native people. And, and it's a cultural thing too. I mean, it's, it's really heavy. Everyone, most people here in Chile are, are mixed, you know, between the, the, the natives and, and the, the white men and everything. And the, you know, the Europeans, um, but the Mapuche and the other indigenous groups have really not, um, received a lot of respect in, in the last 30 years. And, um, and so, yeah, that's a big aspect. Yeah. I will say like, for me, it's very inspiring to have like the president of this new constitution to be a, a Mapuche woman. So um, yeah, I mean, um, I guess that the most important thing, like the, the, the thing that the, this, indigenous people want to claim is their land i mean mm -hmm. land for them is the most important thing and that's what the government i mean for the last 300 years they have been taking from to them and they are now like trying to claim again their 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 space so i mean let's hope that this 
new constitution will bring them back their land and the respect that they deserve. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about this, this new constitution as I think the term used is an ecological constitution. Um, and it's it's the, the necessity of it addressing a lot of the uh, climate, not just climate change, but like a lot of the things caused by climate change, like um, unequal access to water. Um, there's uh, been discussion. I think Ezio Costa of um, of uh, the FIMA NGO has has uh, is arguing currently that the Constitution needs to enshrine a human right to water and recognize it as a common good. Um, it's obviously again they're writing it this week, so it's kind of unclear if that's going to happen. Um, but I, I'm I'm wondering kind of what you what y'all think it's actually because as you've talked about you know with the protests ongoing with the military being deployed in the south this is not a finished fight um it's just a fight that a lot of progress has been made on what do you think is reasonable to expect from this new constitution in terms of 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 climate change in terms of uh, ecological justice i will say that no the, the right of the of water mm -hmm. so water is privatized here so chileans here in santiago we have to pay a spanish company to for our water <laughs> sure <Yeah. laughs> Um, I would say, like, the economy in this country is based on, like, uh, extractivism. So you have, like, the most productive thing is mining, and then you have, like, forestry. Mm -hmm. And all these things, like, they have an enormous impact on the environment. And mm -hmm. the people in Chile, I mean, the people who live like, uh, right next to these kind of uh, things, they don't get anything from them. I mean, the the poorest th places are like right next to the forestry, right next to the mining. So uh, it's kind of like we are creating a lot of uh, income from these things, but we're not getting anything from them. And all, I mean, also it's not like a thing like let's get everything back to the state. I mean, to the to the state because it's it's more than that. It's just like like um, ecological equality, e equity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. It it's not saying we should take all of the private water and give it to the state as much as it's saying everyone yeah. who lives here has a has a personal right to enough water to survive. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so you have towns where small little towns and uh, they don't have any water to drink because all of their water is to the going to the farm owned by Nestle mm -hmm. to make uh, you know to grow avocados to sell to Europe and the United States. So um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty crazy thing. <laughs> One of the things that's most interesting to me about your situation is you, you are in a place where not entirely dissimilar, dissimilar from the United States. You have a police and a military that are heavily dominated by, by right-wing ideology. Um, obviously like the United States is partly responsible for that in your case. We, we funded it for a very long time. Um, and uh, and so it's still an ongoing fight. But at the same time, clearly the people are unhappy enough with that situation and hold like th they were able to make they were able to force the folks with with guns to um to recognize that they can't hold on to everything that they wanted to hold on to. And I I guess I'm. What? How can we do that? <laughs> um, I'm I'm very impressed by like and you know watching from the sidelines. I was just so happy to see this not go where I think we were all scared it might go. You know, in either 
the direction of like Syria, where it turns into this horrible bloodbath, or where everything gets crushed. You know, it it and and I I'm wondering like why you think on a on a broader scale, what do you think was responsible for those people with access to the guns deciding we can't hold on to this? Like, I yeah, I'm I'm just I'm so intensely curious about that because it's 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 important for a lot of people in a lot of other parts of the world yeah i don't know i mean i think it was just the the protest and the daily protest and and just getting out keeping there pressure every day, yeah keeping the pressure on and at some point you know it's like hey this is not good for the economy you know like so yeah. all of the, the rich people um and you know the 10 families that are in control of you know, 60 or 70% of the wealth of the country. And equality. Yeah, yeah. And they, at some point, had to recognize that this was something that, that uh, you know, had reached its boiling point and, and the, they could no longer respond with just force because they tried it and it didn't work for months. And, and it was just months and months of protest and, um, and uh, and obviously that caused a hit to the economy and that caused a hit to the wallets of of the ultra rich. And yeah. so at some point they they realized that uh, they had no other move to play than to accept it in some way. And uh, and that's how we got, uh, you know, this new constitution that is being written. One thing I was I'm interested about is the geography of the protests, because I know Chile is very urban population. And also it's, was, is it like a, it's like a quarter of the population or something lives in Santiago or like in, in, in that area. And so I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, oh, third, I think, yeah. Yeah. wow. Yeah. 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 So, so wondering, it, sorry, I, I just want to note, if I'm not mistaken, there were only five, you have kind of communes instead of states is what they're called. Um, like 10 voted in favor of the referendum and only five voted against it. If I'm not mistaken. Well, communes are within cities. Like, oh, so within Santiago city. has yeah. different communes. Gotcha, uh, gotcha, gotcha. It's like boroughs in New York. But uh, we have different regions instead of states. Right. And, um, and I think they all voted. Yeah, there might be like seven who voted. But what you might be thinking of, um, of yeah, Robert, you might be thinking of communes in Santiago, where yeah. Santiago is very... Um, so it's all on the Rio Mapocho, the, the river, which goes east mm -hmm. to west across the city. And basically you have this like very rich part on the east and up into the hills. And, um, and then it gets poorer and poorer as you go to the west. And um, yeah, for the vote for the Constitution, um, it was everyone voted uh, for the constitution except for these communes, these ultra rich <laughs> mm -hmm. in, in the East. Yeah. Oh, wow. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> when, so something, something I was also curious about this was, so when, when the protests were going on, um, cause you know, Chile's had like huge protests before. I mean, even the last sort of decade, what, what I was interested also with, with this time is like, well, Hey, what do you think is different about this than say like 2011, 2013? And then, B, in terms of like the geographic breakdown of where people are and where they're going, is it that, you know, so, so you, you have this, you have this class divide in the city, but were, were, were the working class districts like, were, were, were people staying there in those districts or were they like moving from those places like to protest inside of the, the richer urban areas? 
Mm, I would say like, I mean, yeah, we have like many protests in the past, but they were more kind of like, I don't know, like students protests, and then you have like, I don't know, like the university protests. But when we have like this protest, like that we like the one we have in 2019, it's like something that unites everyone. I mean, you don't have to be a student, you don't have to go to university to protest. I mean, it's something that uh, it's affecting everyone. I mean, the fares of the metro, they affect everything and the inequality in the country affects everyone. So, um, I mean, that I guess that, that's the thing that make this uh, protest of the 2019 unique in this term. Yeah, and I think uh, it was a, actually a problem when all the protests were happening. A lot of people were saying, we can't keep going to the plaza. You know, the cops are just going to wait for us in the plaza and, you know, it's going to be a shit show and we need to, uh, you know, protest all over. And um, there were protests across Chile in, in every single major city. Um, but I, I will say the majority of the protests have been um, here in the plaza and close to La Moneda, where the presidential palace and um, but some of the most memorable protests and the Costanera Center too. And, and the Costanera <laughs> Center, the, the tallest building in, in Latin America, which is a mall and um, a, a monument to this idea that uh, Piñera has uh, of um, the of Chile being an oasis in South America. Like, yeah. We're not like other countries. We're we're like the United States. You know, we're this capitalism capitalist oasis. And <laughs> exactly. Um, but but yeah. So some of the most memorable protests they they weren't super common, but were exactly that where the people said, you know what, we're not going to the plaza. We're going to Costanera Center, or we're going to Vitacura. We're going to where the millionaires live, where they work. And um, th those were really powerful. And so that's when you started to see like all of those banks and malls and just blocks and blocks of what uh, the, the rich folk like to call San Hatton, you know, Santiago, Manhattan, uh, the, the skyscraper part of the city. And it was just all boarded up, you know, um, be, because uh, there, there were definitely a couple of weeks where the protests went that way. And um, and, and, and yeah, it, it was inspiring. What I keep coming back to when I look about like why it worked, it wasn't because the frontliners just kept the pressure up because the frontliners did it in a lot of places here. The frontliners stayed out well after everyone else stopped coming out. It's sure. that the population kept up the pressure. Like the the there were like Chile as a as a as a nation, as a as a people kept up the pressure in, in, a, in a pretty significant way, um, as opposed to kind of fading back after the first couple of weeks. And um, I mean, it, it, it I think I'm sure the question of why it happened has a lot to do with, like you said, inequality, you know, things that have been going on for decades. It's it's a, it's a complex situation. But it does seem like that's one of the big takeaways that if you can you can secure even in even in a, a pretty terrifying situation, a lot of concessions, a lot of uh, of what you need. But but people have to have to keep putting themselves out there. Yeah, absolutely. I would say it's a couple of things. Um, one is, um, as you mentioned, I think it's like the culture of protests here, you know, especially in the last 10 years. Like 
um, with the Revolución Pinguino in 2011. Yeah. In, in 2011, um, you know, and there were... And the 8M. And the, the feminist pro protests, the 8M. And um, so it's it's not something that just happened two years ago. It, it's the last decade or two has, has been the people, especially the young people going out there and protesting. And um, that's... That's one thing that's inspiring about Boric, the candidate uh, for president. Uh, the election is next month. Uh, so the left-wing candidate, uh, Boric, and, and he came out of that movement. He was a student protester and a leader of the student movement. And so I think it's like it grew out of that. It grew out of kids in high school saying, this is just what we do. This is normal. We go out there and, and protest when, when shit happens. And, and the other thing is, yeah, you know, we always say here in Chile, after the protest started, um, it's not 30 pesos, it's 30 years, you know, 30 years of neoliberalism, of this revolving door of center right and center left and, and just continuing on with the um, economic oppression. And the other thing I feel like people don't understand is that, uh, you know, People either think Chile is like the United States or they think it's like Peru or something, you know, mm -hmm. and it's really neither. In Chile, the the minimum wage is half of what the United States is, which is already terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, the cost of living here is almost the same as you guys in Portland. I mean, not the housing, probably, but yeah. like, you know, food the cost and of stuff. Here, yeah. Yeah, it's like Europe, you know. I could move to Berlin and live cheaper than here, you Ooh, know. But it is I hard to wage <laughs> of three times that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it's that's the other thing is people just they they had no other choice, you know, and, and yeah. they were just bore down by by thirty years, uh, you know, after twenty years of a dictatorship, thirty years of of this terrible wages and um just neoliberalism and uh so so i i think it's it's partially that and partially just like the culture of protests that grew out of the student movements in in the early 2000s mm -hmm. yeah th there was one thing i was interested also interested about that i don't remember seeing much of at the time was what was chilean organized labor doing during this uh, it's a good question. <laughs> Honestly, labor hasn't been a big part of uh, the protests, at least from my point of view. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it 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 took a pretty strong uh, uh, hit during the Pinochet years, if I'm not mistaken. So there was kind of that, like, I guess that does make sense. Uh, sure. Yeah. Honestly, I, I don't know a whole lot about labor history here in Chile, but um, but yeah, it definitely is. I mean, you would see, you know, um, union groups in the streets uh, here and there, but um, but but definitely they they weren't a, a leading voice in the protest. I would say. Yeah. So I, I guess that leads into the other. I guess one one of the other things that from from my understanding has been happening all across Latin America, but, but in, in Chile in particular is the, the rise of the informal sector and people just sort of not having access to sort of stable wages and labor. And, and I'm wondering about, okay, so organized laborers, like the, so the classical unions aren't really involved in this. 
And I guess I'm I'm interested in how if I'm right that that you're dealing with a lot of people who aren't doing traditional labor stuff, what was the process that was able to get people mobilized? Is like especially people who just have no sort of like people people who are in the informal sector and people who aren't involved in the sort of older classical organizations? Yeah, I don't know. I guess I would just say uh, it's like that that culture of protest um, that comes from the the young people uh, in the last 20 years. And then, of course, um, the older folks who, um, you know, uh, lived through the dictatorship. And of course, um, there were an uh, incredible protest at that time, too. And, and so I don't know. I mean, honestly, I was even after living here for, you know, six years, um, I was shocked. I, I never thought it would come to this. I never thought I would see, you know, over half a million people in the streets of Santiago. Um, and, and I would never, never thought we'd see a new constitution. So um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answers. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's surprising to me, but um what I will say, though, is I don't want to paint a rosy portrait of Chile right now, because yeah. um, if uh, like we mentioned, you know, uh, tomorrow night, if you guys go to uh, Galleria Cima, C-I-M-A on YouTube or Instagram, um, they have a live feed of the plaza four blocks from our house. And every Friday, you know, you the protests come out. And sometimes the cops are there right away and they make a whole perimeter with 200 cops and all of the, you know, tanks and everything um, uh, blocking entrance to the plaza in every direction. Sometimes they let the people protest, but then at 10 o'clock, you know, after the sun comes down, they come out there and, um, you know, it's, it's the same thing. We had a young woman was, was killed a couple of weeks ago. Jesus. Yeah. um, so, and the other thing is that we have this election coming up and uh, this guy uh, cast extreme right winger, Pinochetista, um, just like they call him the Chilean Bolsonaro, oh, um, yeah. just like a real piece of shit. And uh, he has, um, he has really risen in the polls in the last month or two. Um, the, right-wing candidate Sitchell, who won the right-wing primaries um, and was kind of going to be the successor to Piñera, the current right-wing president, um, because in Chile, you know, you can't run consecutive, you can't have consecutive terms. Um, But Sitchell just kind of was not a great candidate and uh, kind of blew it. And and he went down and, and now cast is going up. And it's really scary to think about cast getting into the the second round um, where it will probably be him versus uh, Boric. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, even though the, the constitution was approved by 79% of the country um, you know, it's very possible that this election is going to come down to a runoff between a, you know, moderate socialist like Boric um, not the most extreme leftist, uh, in fact, known as Amarillo, you know, very yellow bellied here in mm-hmm. Chile. That's his nickname. Um, but it will probably right now it's looking like it's going to come down to him and cast who is like 
almost a return to the dictatorship. So yeah. it's it's pretty scary. Jeez. So it's just this, there's just so much fighting to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's just so much fighting to do. Um, I mean, I, I, uh, yeah. Um, do you have, do any of you have anything else you want to make sure you, you say or talk about before we kind of close out for the day? I don't know. I will say like three days ago, I just pay my, I, I finally paid my whole student loan. <laughs> it was like, like I've been working for more than 10 years in my life I mean, since I finished the university and I've been wasting, I mean, all my savings, I just pay this fucking student loan. I, I, I guess that you guys in the, in the United States are like the same. Like it's, I don't know. Well, except this, for people don't pay off their student loan. Yeah, we oh, just okay. don't. <laughs> it just, sure. just stays there forever. <laughs> and I just, I, I just, I would like to wish to the other, to the, the coming people that, I mean, I don't wish that future for my, from, I mean, yeah. for the future people in this country. I, I don't wish anyone that. I mean, university, I mean, all students should be, um, study for free i mean it's like unconceivable for me yeah so that was a big part of it and then also the ifpa uh, pension system here which is totally privatized and so you uh you the government just takes your money for retirement you get to choose between four or five options which are private <laughs> companies and then um if you make money then uh, the the company takes you know uh, their chunk of your your retirement as the payment for managing your fund. But if you lose money, then it's on you. So literally, you know, Steffi's mom is like, you know, checking on her retirement. How did I do this year? It's like, oh, you lost two thousand dollars this year. <laughs> that's Jesus. that's your retirement savings, you know. So you and you have you know people here trying to live on you know retirements of $100 a month while the military is receiving $10,000 a month you know so that was a big part of it um but i think what i always come back to here in chile is uh, like we've said the activist renamed the plaza plaza dignidad and that's what it all comes down to is just we're not asking for, you know, ponies, as Hillary Clinton would say. We're not, we're not asking for the moon. We're just asking for basic dignity that everyone deserves. And it's as simple as that. So we just have to uh, cross our fingers and, and hope that um, we've done enough uh, that, that, you know, at a minimum, you know, people can live and retire with some dignity. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that, uh, enough ecological justice can be gained that uh people can survive what's coming um exactly. which it's it's nice to see at the very least that that's a central topic of discussion um whereas in the united states everyone in power seems fine with just ignoring the increasing problems <laughs> for now so I don't know. You know, I, 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 again, I also don't want to be painting too rosy a picture as you've, as you've made repeatedly clear, there's a lot of, of struggle left still. Um, but at least you've, you've, you've achieved 
a lot, and I, I I'm just uh, heartened by by hearing your story, and 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 hope that more people pay attention to what's happened there and try to take lessons from it, because I think we all need to be we all need to be gearing up, um, as as I'm sure y'all will continue to continue to do. Anything else before we we close out? Um, no, that's it. I mean, I completely agree. I, I think that just like the message is that like, you know, better things are possible. Like yeah. real, real, real change can happen. You know, like this started uh, two years ago with high schoolers protesting. And now we're going to have a vote on a new constitution and it's going to be an ecological constitution, a plurinational uh, constitution um, with respect for the indigenous people. It's, it's, uh, it's written by. Uh, the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. 
I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You know, an equal amount of men and women and everything. And and so, yeah, just I think for me, it's so easy for us who have grown up in, uh, you know, under the gloom of neoliberalism to to just get really depressed and fatalistic about it. And uh, so for me, I feel the same way. Like, uh, it's just such an inspiration and uh, the 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 Chilean and and especially the Chilean youth, um, but but yeah, um, it's just an inspiration and uh, and proof that that change can happen. Um, but it's not just voting, and you know, it, like Chileans have elected socialists. You know, the the former president was a socialist, but it was just the same neoliberalism bullshit. So. I think, you know, voting is great, but like that's just not enough. And so you have to, um, you know, uh, get out in the streets and and try to uh, organize and and make real change uh, in other ways as well. All right. Yeah, I agree entirely. Thank you all for coming on. Um, I couldn't appreciate it more. And and I hope you have uh, a a lovely rest of your day and a lovely continuing to uh, uh, stick it to the sons of bitches. your new year's resolution to be more productive with the before breakfast podcast in each bite-sized daily episode time management and productivity expert laura vanderkam teaches you how to make the most of your time both at work and at home these are the practical suggestions you need to get more done with your day just as lifting weights keeps our bodies strong as we age learning new skills is the mental equivalent of pumping iron listen to before breakfast wherever you get your podcasts Raffi is the voice of some of the happiest songs of our generation. Baby Beluga. So who is the man behind Baby Beluga? Every human being wants to feel respected. When we start with young children, all good things can grow from there. I'm Chris Garcia, comedian, new dad, and host of Finding Raffi, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Fatherly. Listen every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Lethal listeners, Tig here. Last season on Lethal Lit, you might remember I came to Hollow Falls on a mission, clearing my Aunt Beth's name and making sure justice was finally served. But I hadn't counted on a rash of new murders tearing apart the town. My mission put myself and my friends in danger, though it wasn't all bad. I'm gonna be real with you, Tig. I like you. But now... All signs point to a new serial killer in Hollow Falls. If this game is just starting, 
You better believe I'm gonna win. I'm Tig Torres, and this is Lethal Lit. Catch up on season one of the hit murder mystery podcast, Lethal Lit, a Tig Torres mystery, out now. And then tune in for all new thrills in season two, dropping weekly starting February 9th. Subscribe now to never miss an episode. Listen to Lethal Lit on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, the show that is only introduced competently when either someone besides me is the one hosting the episode uh, or when I have a guest that uh, I feel embarrassed about being incompetent in front of. And and this is this is the latter case, because today I'm talking with uh, my friend and uh, admired colleague, Molly Conjure. Molly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I got to do that like a professional. Welcome to the show. That's like an NPR shit, right? I know. People have been saying on the Twitch stream that I have a very soothing NPR style voice. You do. You would be great. <laughs> I would love to hear you uh, talking in NPR about how it's it's rad that those those people broke the windows on those police cars or whatever. No, I, I can't um, be allowed allegedly. in respectable spaces. I can't be allowed there. They let me talk on a panel at Harvard one time and I accidentally said fuck in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> I mean, I assume Harvard students know a fuck word or two. They know that one. Speaking of fuck words, there's a oh, couple yeah. of fuck words who are under trial right now for inciting mass violence that led to human death and suffering. Um, you want to you wanna give us the overview? We're, we're talking today about, you know, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017 that led to three deaths. One is the result of direct violence. Heather Heyer, who was murdered, murdered by the fascist James Field, currently in prison for forever. forever. Um, yeah, forever. That, you know, his trial concluded a while ago, um, but there has been churning through the legal system a trial against uh richard spencer jason kessler who was the main organizer um cantwell there's other uh plaintiffs right oh um, goodness gracious yeah, yeah a lot of a lot of fascists <laughs> about you know all of the 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 things that they did the fact that they clearly the intended this to be a violent uh uh riot assault whatever like they they wanted to have it be a fucking lynching, essentially. And there's a lot of evidence, including things they said to each other about building armies to murder people. Um, anyway, uh, Molly, you want to take it from here? I think I've introduced <laughs> the situation. There's a trial yeah. going on. You have been listening to every day of it and covering it on Twitch very ably. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to catch up with you. You also wrote an article in Slate with our friend Emily Gorchinsky about... Um, what's like largely the jury selection of of the trial. So I, I was wondering if you could just kind of give us an overview of what's happened so far, if your thoughts on it. Um, and yeah, that, that seems, that seems good. Yeah. So it, there's just right at the outset, this is a civil trial, right? This is not a criminal yeah. trial. No one's going to the, no one's going to jail at the end of this. Some of them the are who's gal, in jail. We call it. Yeah. Oh, what's that? The who's gal. We call it the who's oh. gal on the show. That's the proper the who's, term. Who's yeah. gal. Okay. Yeah. Um, some of them are already in jail. Obviously, like you said, James Fields is serving mm -hmm. 29 life sentences. To, That's a lot federal. of life. <laughs> That's a lot of life. So he was he was charged in, in Virginia state court by the Commonwealth of Virginia. He was convicted yeah. at trial of first degree murder and several counts of um, aggravated malicious wounding. Um, he was 
So that trial happened in 2018. He actually went to trial for that. Um, but then he pleaded guilty in federal court. So he was charged in two separate courts um, for the same underlying events. And in federal court, he pleaded guilty to 29 federal hate crimes. Um, he pleaded guilty to hate crimes. So there's no yeah. debate about whether these were hate crimes, right? Yeah. Um, and he pleaded guilty to he pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty because a hate crime murder is a capital crime. So in this lawsuit, right, this this civil lawsuit against Deep Breath, Jason Kessler, Richard Spencer, Christopher Campbell, James Alex Field, Vanguard America, Andrew Anglin, Moonbase Holdings, Robert Asmador Ray, Nathan D'Amigo, Elliot Klein, uh, Identity Europa, Matthew Parrott, Matthew Heimbach, uh, Traditionalist Worker Party, Michael Hill, Michael Tubbs, League of the South, Jeff Scoop, now the National Socialist Movement, Nationalist Front, Augustus Sol Invictus, Fraternal Order of the Alt Knights, uh, Mike Pinovich, Loyal White Knights of the KKK, East Coast Knights of the KKK, East Coast Knights of the True Invisible Empire. <laughs> Several of those parties have been dismissed from the suit. Uh, that's a lot. It's a lot of bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, several of those parties have been dismissed from the suit. Um, Augustus Invictus defaulted. Um, Pinovich got now, what, dismissed early is, on. Does that mean – the fact that he defaulted, does that mean he was like, yes? <laughs> <laughs> right. He offered no defense. <laughs> yeah. Is that, um, so that's what that means. Yeah. I mean he's been dealing with a lot. What with he and He's had some problems. He's been in and out of jail. right? He, ad- like he abducted his wife at gunpoint. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I think he's out of jail now, um, but he's had some personal problems. He's had some he's personal had some problems. Issue. Yeah. So the the underlying claim of the lawsuit is a um, Section 1985 complaint, a conspiracy to deprive people of civil rights. Um, okay. This is fundamentally at its at its core an anti clan statute, right? It was designed yeah. to disrupt clan organizing, um, and that's kind of what it's being used for here, right? This is yeah, not I mean, a the KKK perver- is a perversion a party of the, to the suit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the lawsuit was brought by by nine plaintiffs who were harmed, people who got hurt at the rally. Most of the plaintiffs were physically injured in the car attack, although not all of them. Um, but these are people who are seeking damages, right? Like for all all the emotional weight, all the sort of social ramifications. Fundamentally, this is a case about damages. So the jury is going to say, okay, these people were harmed. Do we believe they were harmed by a conspiracy to commit acts of violence, a uh, conspiracy to commit racially motivated acts of violence, yeah. right? So all of those elements have to be proved. <laughs> Did there the was KKK cons- were- guys want to do racial violence when they assaulted right, like, people? Yeah. <laughs> was there a conspiracy? Yeah. Was it motivated by racial animus and were overt acts of violence committed? And did those acts of violence harm these people in a way that entitles them to damages? That's mm-hmm. all the jury has to decide. <laughs> Right. Should be an open uh, shut case. <laughs> not a, not a law nowhere, so. but it does um, seem like kind of an open and shut case. It does. Right. So it, I guess it, if there are people out there who are not familiar with the events of that day, mm-hmm. a lot of alt-right groups, you know, overt neo-Nazi organizations, the literal Klan, the literal American Nazi Party, like neo-Confederate secessionists. Yeah, David groups. Duke was there. <laughs> David Duke was there. David Duke, who Elliot Klein described as an ideological grandfather when he was asking other organizers yeah. if he can invite him. Um, these guys came together. They came to Charlottesville. They brawled in the streets. They beat people. They hit them with shields. Um, a literal clan wizard fired his gun at a black man while screaming, die, N-word. Well, now, um, okay, it seems like you're reaching a bit to call that racially motivated. Well, that's something they're trying to litigate now, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So, it, it, Amazing. And I don't want to... <laughs> 
you're probably <laughs> familiar with the video of DeAndre Harris being beaten nearly yeah, to yeah, death yeah, by members of several different hate groups, right? So yeah. one of the guys that beat him was a TDAP member. One of them was a League of the South member. Uh, and they worked together to beat this young man nearly to death while he was lying on the ground. And so the, today they were talking about like, well, can we really say that was racially motivated? You know, can we really say can we really say? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we can. I, mm-hmm. I think we can. Um, you know, his mother has been on podcasts since his conviction. I'm referring to Jacob Goodwin, the TWP mm-hmm. member, the man who used a TWP riot shield provided to him by Matthew Heinbach to beat this young man. Um, his mother goes on Nazi podcasts still to describe how he, how her son is a martyr for the white cause. So there's I no mean, ambiguity. I mean, but, but where are you getting racially motivated from that, Mom? Right. Like, <laughs> there's a there's a picture of her with her arm around her son. Her mm-hmm. son is like seven feet tall. He's a giant boy. She's got her arm around her large adult son, and he's wearing a T-shirt with a giant picture of George Lincoln Rockwell on it. Ah, ah, so, you love the deep cuts. <laughs> so, you know, at, at Billy Roper's Christmas party. Yeah. Um, another Another Nazi. Right. So there's yeah. not a lot of ambiguity here for the average person. But- so, you know, like you were saying, Emily and I wrote about jury selection. Jury selection is um, – so tri- court proceedings are, generally speaking, open to the public. Anyone can go to their local courthouse and you can sit through a trial. You can sit through the voir dire process. You can see how a jury gets chosen. Yeah. You can go um, trial hopping, get wasted, you know? Like, free entertainment. As long mm-hmm. as you sit quietly, they can't make you leave. That's right. Um, it's like a but, library. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Very discouraging because the whole point is to pick jurors who've never encountered reality. You pick people who don't have any opinions, right? Because you want them to be able to be impartial. And the best way to make sure your jury is going to be impartial is to pick people who don't have any opinions. And if you don't have any opinions on whether or not it's good for Nazis to beat people in the streets, I would say that in and of itself is an opinion that you already have, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, The ability to not have an opinion about that. So the jury selection took three days because they had to go through this process of speaking to each juror individually. Usually they'll, they'll do it in batches where they ask questions of people in batches. Um, but this was so sensitive they didn't want to taint the jury pool. So they did it one by one. So it took three days. Um, and they chose jurors who didn't have opinions about the existence of racism in the United States. OK, that seems unbiased. Again, it's this thing you keep seeing where it's like. Well, we can't let people have a bias, so it has to be people who have never heard of white supremacy, which is like, well, then that's a bias in favor of white supremacy. But, of course, that's the default of the system. It's like, that's the tear, right? Like, you stick white supremacy on the scale and you tear it, but then you add awareness of white supremacy and suddenly there's weight on it, you know? It's... Sorry. It's very frustrating. Yeah, no, it's, I know was, you um... know it's frustrating. I mean, yeah, I shouldn't... It was... yeah. Frustrating to sit sit through listening to them to ask people, you know, because they, they had to fill out a questionnaire ahead of time so, mm-hmm. you, so they can sort of sift through obvious no's. Um, and one of the questions was, you know, how do you feel about, you know, how concerned are you about these different kinds of prejudice? You know, prejudice against black people, prejudice against Hispanic people, prejudice against Jewish people, or prejudice against white people. And a lot of people indicated that they were very concerned about anti-white racism. Oh, good. Right? And a, a lot of jurors were were asked follow-up questions about like, well, why aren't you more concerned about anti-white racism? Why did you say you don't care about that? Well, because it's not real. Yeah, because I've never seen it in my entire life. Um, uh-huh. But, <laughs> okay. So, but yeah. we seated a jury. We did seat a jury. And there were, you know, there's always concern in a case like this that you just won't be able to get an impartial jury. But we got, it could be worse, right? It could be worse. Um. 
There is a guy on the jury who said that in high school he was the victim of a racially motivated attack by an, by a Samoan person um, because okay. they didn't like white people. Hmm. So, I wonder so, what that person was doing slash saying. <laughs> black people who believe that they have a right to exist without being subjected to racism, not impartial, can't be on the jury. Uh, but a white guy who says he was the victim of a hate crime because someone didn't like Howley's jury. He's on the oh, jury. So God. God, so people talking about like, I don't like it when folks not from my island come here and fuck shit up and make it expensive. Yeah, that's yes. anti-white yeah, racism. He was, he was living yes. in Hawaii. Incredible. Incredible. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, it, it could be a worse jury. It could be a worse jury, but it's not ideal. Um, God, where did we go from there? It's been it's been a little bit of a blur. Um, so Cantwell and Spencer don't have lawyers. Right. Well, yeah. Okay. So, oh, right. Because Cantwell, Cant, Cantwell is <laughs> for people who aren't aware. Cantwell is representing himself. And tell, correct me if I'm wrong here, but he started by acknowledging the old saying that a person who represents themselves has a fool as a lawyer. But then said, then, "But I'm not a fool in this case." Yeah, he said, "You may have heard this, mm-hmm. but that's not true here. That's not the case here." In, and he, in so unbelievable, said, <laughs> just and incredible. Then he, said, <laughs> and he said, "And I didn't even stay in a Holiday Inn Express last night." Oh my God! Really? He seriously then, made a Holiday Inn Express joke while he was on. Oh my God! But the follow-up, the follow-up was, but I did stay in the Central Virginia Regional Jail because that is where he's staying. Yeah, right I mean, cause because he's he's in prison for he sexually trans- or not for for um harassing and threatening and yeah. blackmailing another Nazi, right? Yeah, yeah. He was transported here from the federal prison in Marion, Illinois, where he is a guest until next Christmas. Um, Mm. so he had filed motions to exclude the fact that he's currently incarcerated as is his right, right? Like if you are a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think that's bad in a, a, you know, in a criminal case or in a, um, in a a civil case, it is, it is your right to have the jury not see you in a jumpsuit. And I respect that. I think that's good. That's important. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So he went to great lengths to make sure that the jury would never see him in cuffs, that the marshals wouldn't bring him in in irons, that he would change before the jury arrived at the courthouse. All very reasonable. And no one was going to get to talk about it. Yeah. But he brought it up in his own opening statement. He told them, <laughs> just, hey, just hey I'm here from prison. I'm here from uh, prison. Because- by the way, I'm in prison for the other crimes I committed. But they're not related to these crimes. They're not related to these crimes, uh, except to the extent that he's unable to shut the fuck up. He's only yeah. in prison because yeah. he emailed the FBI or recording him of him doing the crime that he's in prison for. He's he's really a, a very cunning man. <laughs> But I, I think, you know, so as much as those crimes aren't relevant to this case, I think it is very relevant to his trial strategy, right? That mm-hmm. he has this belief that all the things he did that were wrong, they were right, actually. He just needs to explain to us why he did them, and then we'll understand, right? He's in prison because he tried to talk his way out of a thing that he did that was wrong by telling everyone that he did do it. Like, yes, I did it because I had to. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to make an extortionate threat to rape another man's wife in front of their children you didn't actually have to do that yeah that's really i mean i would i might argue and perhaps i'm an extremist but there's no situation (laughs) in which you would ever have to do that (laughs) nobody made you email the fbi about how you did that Mm -hmm. yeah but you did i think Uh, the fbi (laughs) would have told you that was a bad idea I mean, there's some there's some snarky stuff in some of, in some of the affidavits about how like he called the Keene Police Department trying to tattletale on other people so often that they were tired of taking his calls. Unbelievable! What an amazing man! Like he's he's piece of shit, but he is legitimately an incredible person. 
I mean, if you wrote this, no one would believe it, right? This is so heavy-handed. It's so goofy. Like when he was paying Elmer in guns. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, his law. He paid his lawyer in guns, and then he ran out of guns, and had to. His lawyer stopped working for him. Yeah, so he doesn't have a lawyer anymore because he ran out of guns to pawn. Although I guess he can't anymore because now he's a convicted also, felon. I gotta say, running out of guns to pawn for your lawyer—it's pretty cucked. <laughs> <laughs> he even had to sell the bucket of loose bullets he used to keep as a prop on his desk. Oh I mean, really devastating stuff. Um. That's, so he doesn't that's, have a, you're you're down to the brat you're down to the rails when you're doing that. <laughs> really the bottom of the barrel. So he's mm-hmm. proceeding pro se, which unfortunately, unfortunately for everyone involved, means he gets to talk a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. Which means he gets sure. to cross-examine his own witnesses, right? So the first two witnesses the plaintiffs put on were two of their plaintiffs, right? Two young people who were injured in these events. The first witness they put on, uh, Natalie. It's a UVA student who had her skull fractured in the car attack. Um, she had to learn how to walk again. She had to see a neurologist to retrain her eyes to track movement. I mean, she was very badly injured. Um, and so she testified at length about the damage that was done to her, because again, this is a case about damages. So the jury needs to learn who is this person, what happened to them, what did it cost them physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, um, because what they're going to be asked to do is to put a dollar amount on it. So they had mm-hmm. to meet her and hear about her injuries um, and hear about her motivation for being there. Um, you know, she's a young, queer, Latina woman. She's the first college student in her family. You know, she's a very impressive young woman. And she, she was very composed on the stand, um, as, as awful as the content was. Mm-hmm. Um, but then every single one of the defendants gets to cross-examine her. Richard Spencer oh, gets to cross-examine God. her. God. Christopher Cantwell gets to cross-examine her. James Kalenich, who took the case, he's Kessler, D'Amigo, and Identity Europa's lawyer, James Kalenich. Mm-hmm. He's an Ohio-based attorney who said on the record that he took this case with the express purpose of opposing Jewish influence. Um, great. Great. Kalenich gets to cross-examine her. Um, Matt Heimbach's new lawyer, Josh Smith, who used to be the campaign spokesman for Paul Nealon. Um, he's Paul a Holocaust-denying... Was an in, endorsed by Trump at one point in his run for Congress, uh, and is also just a straight up Nazi who's repeatedly threatened to murder you. Yeah, yeah. One time he spent all day posting pictures of a deer that he said that he named after me. He said I named this deer Molly. You know, he spent all day stalking it, posting pictures of it, posting pictures of his gun, um, and then he posted a picture of the deer staged like a lynching. Mm-hmm. And then he spelled my name out in its entrails and posted pictures of that. So you're just like a really normal guy, Paul Nealon. Like, yeah, totally. Completely with it. Um, mm-hmm. the cam- his campaign spokesperson when he ran for Congress was um, the Holocaust-denying um, former Jew, uh, Josh Smith. Josh Smith was born Daniel Nussbaum. He changed his name to hide his Jewish past. Um, oh, wow. That is an old story among the Nazis. I mean, we talked about the guy who invented uh, 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 sea monkeys. But yeah, it's basically the mm. same case. And you know like who you- else hides their identity? Oh, no. no. Okay. Um, this was meant to be an ad plug. Normally, Sophie would jump in and stop me from doing oh. that. Uh, don't none think of these about, advertisers. None, none of, of these, these advertisers. advertisers are plaintiffs in the current case that you're covering. That's a guarantee. That is that is an absolute promise. David Duke is a, not about to sell you dick pills. No, no, no. Although he could use them. We're back. Um, all right, Molly. Sorry. Please continue. God, where were we? I got distracted thinking about David Duke trying to sell you dick pills. Yeah, um, I uh, that's not good. 
good for anybody. Right. So everybody gets to cross-examine the witness. Josh Smith is Heimbach's new lawyer. Um, Kalenich used to be a lot of these guys' lawyers, and then he sort of dropped them over time as they became uncooperative. There were all these motions to withdraw. Yeah. So Kalenich, Kalenich slowly dropped clients over the last two years. Um, uh, he dropped Cantwell as a client because Cantwell wouldn't stop posting about hurting Roberta Kaplan. Right. Who's the lead counsel for the plaintiffs, Roberta Kaplan, famous, famous Jewish lesbian lawyer. You know, she was um, on the uh, USV uh, Windsor. The, the oh, God, I'm losing it. Absolutely losing it. No, the Supreme no, Court case great. that gave us gay marriage, right? Roberta Kaplan brought us gay marriage, essentially. Yeah. So, she, you know, famous Jewish lesbian. That is a well-known portion of her identity. And Kentwell kept posting um, anti-Semitic remarks about her. And finally, Kalenich was like, you're making it really hard to be your lawyer. And you don't pay me. <laughs> um, and Kalenich dropped uh, Heimbach as a client in 2019 because Heimbach just stopped answering his calls. Um, great. Smart and, people. Yeah. So Matt Parrott, who's Matt Heimbach's father-in-law, but also the husband of the woman that he was sleeping this complicated. There's a chart. There's a chart. Um, Matt Heimbach and Matt Parrott, um, founders of the Traditionalist Worker Party, best friends for a long time, fuck each other's wives, big problems, big problems mm-hmm. for them. Yeah, the, um, the night of wrong wives. The night of the wrong wives. So yeah. Matt Parrott was technically Matt Heimbach's father-in-law during yeah, the time sure period was. which Heimbach was fucking Parrott's wife. Um, Very classy people. Not a great situation. So they, they lost their lawyer um, – Parrot very publicly told all traditionalist worker party members to destroy evidence. Um, so we knew that, right? That was on the record from the beginning that Matt Parrot was like, hey, everyone in TWP, if you did any crimes, delete it. Mm-hmm. Right? Delete your social media. Delete your pictures. Like, we weren't there, right? Yeah, delete and that's, all th- that's a crime. That's a crime. Yeah, that that's is a, a crime. crime. That is a crime right there. But an interesting thing that we learned today that I don't think we did know before Um. In November 2018, so they played a recording of a conversation between Matt Heimbach and Christopher Cantwell. And this was um, during examination of Heimbach. So Heimbach was on the stand um, and they're talking about like, you know, you didn't produce discovery. You said you lost your phone, this, that and the other. You know, after you beat your wife, she threw away your phone. Um, So he said, I couldn't turn over my social media accounts because my wife deleted them because we had an argument about me taking out the trash, right? Like we had this domestic dispute about the trash Mm -hmm. and she deleted all my accounts. So I couldn't turn them over. Um, Well, today we found out that he told Cantwell in 2018, so a year after the lawsuit was filed, when a lawsuit is filed against you, you have a legal obligation to not do things like this. He told Cantwell that after a conversation with his lawyer, on the advice of his lawyer, he deleted those accounts. Oh. Oh, great. So, so there's a, just a record of him criming. Yeah. That's a crime? Yeah. And it's also is... a crime for his lawyer to have advised him to do that. Great. Um, again, that's there's no direct evidence who told him to do that. But we do have a recording of him saying a lawyer told him to. So that's not great. That's not is a good he, situation. Is he going to get charged with anything for that? <laughs> I am curious. You know, I'm not a lawyer, just for everyone listening. I'm not a lawyer. I didn't go yeah. to law school. I didn't even finish undergrad. I'm not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have listened to a lot of lawyers. And but I am I am curious what with what frequency can perjury charges be sought in a civil case, right? Yeah. Um it's still under oath, like it is still perjury. But how common is that to be pursued? Because they're perjuring. 
Yeah, um, they're for sure perjuring. They're I, I perjuring. Mean, they're just doing the thing the right always does, which is trust that the law will never actually come after them for their many crimes. And there's anyway, there's a good chance they'll be right. God, you know, like Heimbach said, you know, when he was asked, have you ever provided security for Richard Spencer? And he said, no. And it's like, okay, well, there's like a hundred pictures of you doing mm-hmm. that at multiple events. Um, you know, they're claiming they don't know each other. Like, here's all these pictures of you guys hanging out. Um, God, where else are we? Um, yeah, I'm curious. I, I, you know, one thing that kind of, especially because of the Rittenhouse thing, and we're actually, we'll be talking to Jesus, our mutual yeah. lawyer tomorrow night about, or tomorrow about the Rittenhouse <laughs> thing. Um, every cool person shares the same lawyer. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, uh, but yeah, I, because of that, I'm kind of curious, what do, what is your, what sense do you get of this judge? There's no good judges. There's no mm-hmm. good judges. But it could be Yeah, worse, I mean, I'm not right? saying like, is yeah, but how yeah, is it? It, it you could know? be, it could be a lot worse. You know, Trump appointed a shitload of federal judges pretty recently. Um, judge Moon yeah. is 85 years old. He's a Clinton appointee. He's That's... a Clinton appointee. So it could be yeah. worse. Could be worse. Um, he's, so he's been on the bench, you know, since I was in elementary school. Um, and he's very old and he doesn't, Mm -hmm. he, he has, he's a little bit hard of hearing, but he's not stupid. Um, and there's a lot of people I think who are really frustrated with some of the things he's allowing to happen. He's, he's really allowing these, these pro se defendants, uh, to sort of run roughshod over the procedure. But, you know, like I said, before we started recording, it's really hard to apply, I get like the, the, your sense of how things are supposed to work doesn't really apply in court, right? There's a very rigid sort of outdated set of rules and procedures and they don't feel right. They don't feel logical or reasonable or Mm -hmm. fair, but there is a specific way that it works and it is hard to watch, especially if you've never seen it before. And because of the emotionally fraught nature of this, it's particularly frustrating to be, to, to, to be listening on this line and saying like, why are they allowed to do this to this witness? Well, legally, you can cross-examine your witnesses, even if you are the person who hurt them. It's not a good system, but it is how it works. Um, but he's, um, and I also think there's there's concern about appellate issues. There's concern yeah. about mistrial. And so they're really going out of their way not to give anyone any excuse to say, well, this was not fair to me. Um, they're going to say it anyway, but they, they're really letting them have a long leash in a way that feels very bad. But at the same time, I, I can kind of understand it. Yeah. Um, um, I wish they hadn't done so much Holocaust denial, like on on the yeah, record. Yeah, that would be good. Um, they they put an expert on today, who's um, Dr. Deborah Lipstadt, who's an expert in Holocaust denial, to sort of <laughs> talk about what the Holocaust is. I guess in case the jury doesn't good know. God, oh, that's bleak. Oh my, uh, that I mean, is, that's <laughs> fucking bleak. <laughs> because they chose this jury based on them never yeah. having heard of Jews, you know. My God. They cho- yeah, it's a bunch yeah. of like middle-aged people from Green County who have never met a Jewish person. So they had to put on a professor to say, okay, when he says gas the K-words, we're talking about gas chambers, gas chambers from the Holocaust. They didn't start out with gas chambers. They started with mass shootings, but it was too messy. I mean, she was literally recounting sort of the evolution from the Einsatzgruppen, you know, shootings in the fields mm-hmm. to the to the gas chambers. Like we, we had to talk all the way through it um, because it seems – unnecessary but again for the jury it might be necessary and so when yeah. asmador uh, robert you don't Ray want to take anything for granted you know yeah right
right. And you really have to sort of lay out these connections, right? Because the idea is you have to prove a conspiracy and you have to prove the conspiracy was racially motivated. Um, and so when Asmodor is the racist wizard name that um, Robert Ray uses when he writes for the Daily Stormer, when Asmodor keeps saying, we're going to gas the K-words, everyone knows what I mean when I say that, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, you know, he, he keeps saying, you know, the, the plan is to gas the K-words, you know, G-T-K-R-W-N, um, gas the K-words, race war now. He keeps saying, he mm. keeps saying, keeps saying it. And then the torch march he pepper sprays a bunch of people, which he is currently a fugitive of justice for. Um, he's um, he's wanted for felonies in um, Almoral County. He's missing. Um, so he says he's going to do it. Then he does it. And then afterwards, he's on video saying, yeah, I gassed half a dozen K words. So you can Great. see from A to B to C. And then we have this expert saying, OK, what he's saying is a direct reference to the Holocaust. Yeah. Right. Um it like he's like you said, it's pretty open and shut. It's pretty straightforward A to B to C. Um, you know, we have these Discord leaks. Um, if you want to browse them, they're on Unicorn Riot. Um, and almost immediately after the rally, Unicorn Riot had these Discord leaks. Um, the entire server, the Charlottesville 2.0 server, where they planned this out, where they're in the Discord saying, Yeah, it's gonna be so great, we're gonna do so much violence, we're gonna we're gonna hurt people, we're gonna bring shields, we're gonna bring base. Really explicitly talking about the plan making jokes about hitting people with cars. Um, now, the, the entire Discord will be admitted. Um, it, it has been authenticated. They received another copy of it via subpoena directly from Discord. It's real. It's evidence, um, as much as Cantwell doesn't like that. Mm. Uh, but more than that, um, we have you know some first-person authentication. We heard deposition testimony from Elliot Klein's ex-girlfriend. Um, the woman that he was living with in 2017. So in the summer of 2017, he was living with this woman that he had just met and entered into a, a romantic relationship with. Um, she has since left the movement. Uh, she has a lot of regret about her involvement in that time period. And, you know, there's people have a lot of mixed feelings about what it means to leave the movement, what it means to atone. Is it possible to redeem yourself for having been a part of something like that? Uh, we don't have to litigate that. No, but no, we do have to. Place, but yeah, well, we do have to recognize that her testimony is damning. Yeah, I mean, this is not this is not Elliot Klein putting on a show in public. This is not Elliot Klein posturing for his friends. This is Eli at home in bed with his girlfriend talking about his fantasies of killing all the Jews. Um, and her testimony was pretty harmful. Yeah, um, it, you some, would think. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. You know, he really. You have to wonder how the jury is taking this, right? These people who have no yeah. concept or context who for this, been listening and to breathing this for years, yeah, hours of this woman sort of near tears, talking about how her boyfriend said that he was going to put her in a breeding camp once they had the ethno state. Um, not Great. nice. No, <laughs> really, not nice stuff. Um, and she also tests. You know, we we have the messages from the Discord where people are posting memes and jokes about hitting protesters. Um, but Samantha testified that at private parties at Richard Spencer's house in the summer of 2017, these private parties with the organizers of the event at Richard Spencer's apartment, people explicitly discussed the legality of hitting people with their cars. This is not right. random people in the Discord that Richard could say, no. oh, I don't know him. I never met him. I never posted in Discord. This is somebody sitting on your couch, Richard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, Samantha said that it, during that time period, um, Klein was building an army for Richard. Um, and Kessler texted Spencer something similar, right? That we're, we'll build an army, my liege. 
fucking dork ass shit. Um, but so one, one, one fun surprise from Samantha was that during that time period, Klein was, you know, planning to provide his militia in the form of Identity Europa, right? These, these street troops he was going to provide to Spencer to build the movement. But that when the time came, he always knew that he would kill Richard to take control. <laughs> these people <laughs> are all such fucking... It's a shame that what they actually are is deniable assets for the the most dangerous folks, you know, the fucking the fucking Bannon types. Um, right. Because if if all of the fascists were this dumb, I wouldn't be so worried. And it's hard. It's hard to walk the line between, you know, really getting a kick out of some of these moments where it is yeah. genuinely funny, right? But then yeah. you remember, like, these people are very dangerous. These mm-hmm. people are responsible for a death. These people... Mm-hmm. It's this emotional whiplash, right, of, of the plaintiffs getting on and saying, yes, my life was ruined. I still have mm-hmm. nightmares. I, I still have to go to physical therapy. And then Cantwell getting up there and asking Heimbach if he's a federal agent. Yeah. Right? Like, I think – so we've only seen one of the defendants on the stand so far. But I have a strong feeling Cantwell is going to use every opportunity that he has his frenemies under oath to ask them if they snitched on him. Yeah. That's that's going to be pretty funny. It's going to be great. You got to laugh yeah. sometimes. Life's too hard. But Cantwell is really using this. I think, you know, he has nothing to lose, right? This is a case about yeah. damages. He has no money for them to take. He has $30,000 in credit card debt and his car got repossessed once he went to prison. He mm-hmm. has nothing for them to take. The only person he knows who did have anything is Ian Freeman, who's currently facing federal charges for some sort of complicated Bitcoin money laundering scam through a fake church. Um, so he doesn't even have any friends to help him. That's an interesting case, but I don't have time for it now. Um, yeah, but he, so he has nothing for them to take. He's already a felon. He can't have a gun anymore. I think he's just using this as an opportunity, as a platform to get his message out there and to harm the people he thinks harmed him. So every chance he gets, he's trying to force witnesses to dox people. Right. He asked one of the plaintiffs, um, Devin Willis, another young man who was, who was injured at the torch march. Um, a plaintiff in this case, he asked him, he forced him to name the names of the non-parties who were also counter-demonstrating at the statue. These people's names have not been on the record. They, you know, some the of judge them, made him do that. Made him do that. That's fucked up. Um, and you know, you could, if you were, I don't know, a complete baby-brained idiot, you could say, well, the, you know, that maybe there was a legal reason that he needed those names. Mm-hmm. There's not. And we know there's not because he tried to do it again today. Um, there was a non-party witness, a young woman who lived um, in one of the dorm rooms right by the rotunda. They're called the lawn rooms. It's a prestigious mm. opportunity. Only super high achievers get to live in those beautiful historic lawn rooms. So she lived right near where the torch march was happening. And she heard it and she went outside and she looked at it. Um, she's not a party to the suit. She has no knowledge of these people or what happened. She just saw this thing happen and she testified to that. Um, and he tried to, you know, she had made some passing remark that she'd heard from another student that maybe there would be a thing on campus, right? That they knew about the rally the next day, but like, I don't know, maybe these guys will try and come here, just like be on your toes, right? Not anything specific. She was not, she's not an activist. She's not, she didn't know anything, right? And so he was grilled her. Tell me who told you that. Tell me who told you that. How did you know that? And he said on the record, direct quote, I want to know who infiltrated our communications. So he's trying to use this this moment where he has someone under oath to extract information about who snitched. 
He wants to know who infiltrated their secret communications, which is him admitting there were secret communications that weren't turned over in Discovery, which wasn't smart of him to do. But he's using Mm -hmm. this process to get names of people who he can harass. And we know that's what they're doing because while he was getting these names from that other witness, you know, the names of the people at the statue, Jason Kessler, the the lead defendant, right, the, the defendant whose name is on the lawsuit, the lead organizer of the rally, is posting all this time. He's posting through it, posting through mm-hmm. it. If you had a good lawyer, he would tell you not to post through your own conspiracy trial. Um, so while Cantwell is extracting these names from this poor young man, Kessler's posting them. He's posting their pictures and their legal names and describing their involvement. These people who are not party to this lawsuit. And there's no way to interpret that other than as, as a vehicle for harassment. Um, yeah. So yeah. there's, I, I think there will be, there will be collateral damage of this lawsuit, but I hope that it does um, have the intended deterrent effect. Right. Um, sorry, I've been talking at length for a while, but just no, in, no, no, no. In, in summation, in summation, I think um, inside the courtroom, this is a case about damages, right? The judge is very clear that like, stop talking about broader societal impact. You can't tell the jury about that. That's not relevant to this case. This legally speaking is a case about did this thing happen? Were these people hurt by it? What is the dollar amount of their pain? Legally speaking, that's it. But outside the courtroom, this is about deterrence, right? This is about setting yeah. a precedent that if you do this, if you plan a rally, knowing that's that the people who come to your rally will hurt people because you told them that's the goal, Right. Mm-hmm. Even if you are not the one who swings the stick, even if you're not the one pressing the accelerator, you are responsible and you can be held accountable. Yeah. And that is an important message. Yeah, we will like your life will be ruined if you participate in this shit. Mm-hmm. That even if you don't have anything for us to take, we will put a garnishment on you that will follow you to the fucking grave. Yep. Yep. And yeah. I think, yeah, that's that's I would agree what I think is important here. Um, Molly, I think that's, that's everything for now. We're still, how, how much longer do we have to go through this? The, uh, the, the court, whatchamajig? Well, it's scheduled for four weeks. It's been one and a half. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and there was, there was some, some anxiety and hand-wringing about how maybe four weeks won't cut it. Yeah. Jesus. So well, I'm, I'm regretting my decision to actively... Lives- live tweet so like i'm transcribing in real time yeah, for eight hours everything a day that happens oh your yeah. fingers you are you using a laptop or are you doing it on a phone i'm doing it on a laptop thank god so because of covid um no one can go into the courthouse because there's so many parties in this case and there's the plague and no one can go into the courthouse except for there's there's a press room where 15 people who got pre-approved by a federal court can go and sit and look at a monitor mm-hmm. um but i'm sitting at home i'm comfy at home Good. So I'm uh, using my computer. Thank God. Okay. Thank God. Yeah, that would be enough. And I was I was disappointed. You know, I kind of wanted. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. To see, I love to see, I love the courtroom ambiance. Mm-hmm. But I'll be honest, I'm I way less worried. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm way less worried about getting stabbed here at home. That is true. That is true. People are less likely to get stabbed at home. Or more likely, <laughs> one of the two. Um, I don't know. Uh, tell us in the comments where you think people are most likely to get stabbed. Uh, and um, Molly, thank you so much. Thank you both for what you're doing uh, and for coming on the show. Is there anywhere the listeners can find slash support you? Uh, would you like people to mail you knives? What? Oh, mail me like- knives. <laughs> yeah, but not as a threat, like as a fun thing. Fun knives for fun. Oh. I did get a, a, a large machete in the mail the other day, and before I saw the um, the little gift note, I was confused. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, I'm glad you're getting gift machetes. 
Yeah, yeah. My my friend Shep um, is a, a sheep farmer in North Carolina. Sent me a large blade. Thanks, yeah, Shep. Good. Um, no, but um, so if you're interested in reading moment by moment live transcription of um, of people screaming Holocaust denial at a federal judge, um, you can check me out on Twitter. That's at Socialist Dog Mom. That's what happens when you make a little joke with your friends when you have five followers and. Um, and then you end up using it professionally. Yeah, That's then, you, then you become national news repeatedly. <laughs> I don't. Then people are posting your mugshot, making fun I know, of your username. I know your bullshit mugshot. <laughs> you, you look great, but it's, I look uh, fine. It's bullshit. Um, Nobody looks good after they get left in a hot van like a dog. Yeah, but that's true. Well, well Molly, that's gonna be <laughs> the end of the episode. So it is. why don't we? Why don't we? Sing a song and 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 roll out. Hopefully, not the song that uh, Heimbach included in his Christmas letter to James Fields in prison. Oh God, that must have been really special. Ah, <laughs> oh, geez, I'll have to look that up. I did come across in my um my browsing through fascist Telegram the other week an entire mm-hmm. album, dozens of songs that were all Nazi covers of Blink One Eighty Two's entire discography. <laughs> Everything. Everything, <laughs> and they called it. Of course, they called it Blink fourteen eighty eight. Like, of course they did. Of, of course, course they, they did. did. It was. I don't. I don't even know. Like, I. I. I don't even know. Like, how to talk about that. It, it was just a know, thing um, that I found. Ham, do you and, know Hampton Stall, the the guy who studies malicious? Oh stuff? yeah, 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 yeah. He's got a particular fascination with white power rap. Oh God, yeah, it's never any good. Although there was a, there is a fun in one of the uh, H Bomber guy videos. He found finds this flat Earth Nazi who has a rap that's amazing. <laughs> uh, I, all right, I'm partial. I'm partial to Cantwell's diss tracks. Yeah, oh, God, Chris Cantwell. Well, thank you, Molly, and uh, off we go into the wild blue yonder. I'm going to go smoke some legal weed and fall asleep face down, hopefully not thinking about this trial. I am not going to smoke some legal weed because that's federally a crime, Molly. All right. (laughs) Have a good day, Molly. Thank you all for listening. When P.T. Barnum's Great American Museum burned to the ground in 1865, what rose from its ashes would change the world. Welcome to Grim and Mild Presents, an ongoing journey into the strange, the unusual, and the fascinating. For our inaugural season, we'll be giving you a backstage tour of the always complex and often misunderstood cultural artifact that is the American Sideshow. So come along as we visit the shadowy corners of the stage and learn about the people who were at the center of it all. In a place where spectacle was king, we will soon discover there's always more to the story than meets the eye. So step right up and get in line. Listen to Grim and Mile Presents now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more over at GrimAndMild.com slash presents. Executive producer Paris Hilton brings back the hit podcast, How Men Think. And that's good news for anyone that is confused by men, which is basically everyone. Get an inside look at what goes on in the mind of men from the men themselves. It's real talk. 
straight from the source. The How Men Think podcast is exactly what we need to figure them out. It's going to be fun, informative, and probably a bit scary at times because we're literally going inside the minds of men. As much as we like to think all men are the same, they're actually very different. Each week, a celebrity guest host provides honest advice in his area of expertise. When I agreed to do this reboot, I had a few conditions. No sugarcoating, no mind games, and absolutely no mansplaining. Men are hard enough to understand without the mind games. Listen to How Men Think on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? I'm Rashad Bilal. And I am Troy Millings, and we are the hosts of the Earn Your Leisure podcast, where we break down business models and examine the latest trends in finance. We hold court and have exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in business, sport and entertainment, from DJ Khaled to Mark Cuban, Rick Ross, and Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, our alumni list is expansive. Listen in as our guests reveal their business models, hardships, and triumphs in their respective fields. The knowledge is in-depth, and the questions are always delivered from your standpoint. We want to know what you want to know. We talk to the legends of business, sports, and entertainment about how they got their start and most importantly, how they make their money. Earn Your Leisure is a college business class mixed with pop culture. Want to learn about the real estate game? Unclear as how the stock market works? We got you. Interested in starting a trucking company or a vending machine business? Not really sure about how taxes or credit work? We got it all covered. The Earn Your Leisure podcast is available now. Listen to Earn Your Leisure on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that is occasionally introduced competently, as it sort of was today, uh, because our guest today is someone who is very near and dear uh, to me and to, like, almost every other person that I know and work with. (laughs) Um, Moira Meltzer-Cohen. Moira, you are a lawyer uh, uh, focusing on civil rights and movement kind of cases uh and you are the lawyer of yeah like every everybody i respect in the world (laughs) (laughs) yeah um you're the person that i text whenever i need to know hey was this a crime um or (laughs) it never is and it never is uh i'm law-abiding very law-abiding um and uh yeah we wanted to have you on both because you're always a breath of sunshine and because um, there's some like law stuff happening these days. We just had um, our mutual friend Molly Conjure on to talk about the Charlottesville case, which is quite a thing. Uh, today was the day. Yeah, today today had some had some moments. Chris Cantwell and Richard Spencer representing themselves separately, each cross-examining each other. I have so many thoughts. But mostly, my thoughts involve laughing. So. Yeah, it's very, very funny. It's 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 the funniest of a of an incredibly tragic and infuriating situation. Something yep. fine, funny finally happened. Um, so at least there's Chris that. Is often very funny in spite of himself. <laughs> yeah, um, I would love one day to just get you on and do a. We can do a reading of some of Chris Cantwell's better legal filings. Um, oh, he's got quite the legal mind. Robert, I, I think I maybe didn't ever tell you about the fact that we um, did a Purim spiel, which is a performance of the story of Esther. Um, oh, my God. Traditionally done. 
at Purim, which is a Jewish holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was based on the complaint that he filed. Oh my God. Twitter the third was prominently featured in the role of Haman. For those of you who don't know, Chris Cantwell, the crying Nazi from the Unite the Right rally, has been incarcerated for a year or so now um, and continues to put out his own legal motions, generally handwritten, um, alleging all kinds of conspiracies from the people who did not call the FBI and admit to committing several crimes. Yeah, we should we should absolutely absolutely do a crossover with Daniel Harper um, and Moira to discuss Cantwell's uh, legal genius. But but today, Moira, we wanted to have you on because there is another case that uh, a lot of folks are rightly concerned about because it has some pretty dire implications, depending yeah. on how it goes in a number of ways. Uh, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, for the, I mean, everyone knows Kyle Rittenhouse took a gun illegally across state lines to a protest so he might have the chance to shoot people um, and then shot people. This is my opinion about what happened. Obviously, the legal case is unfolding um, uh, there's been a lot of talk online, on on Twitter and whatnot, about how obviously unfair the judges being. This is what the talk on Twitter is about, and it's because of a couple of things. One is that the judge, and and again, I'm before I I, cut, I go to you, Moira. I'm I'm just explaining kind of the way the discourse has been. The discourse has stated like, well, the judge said uh, you can't call Kyle, you can't call the people that he killed victims, uh, but you can call the people that he killed looters and arsonists. Um, and so people are saying, look at this very clear example of how how bad the justice system is. Um, and I wanted to bring you on for a number of reasons, including the fact that, like, there's a lot of stuff that seems fucked up and, in fact, is fucked up, you could argue, but is also like like pretty normal justice system stuff and some stuff that seems fucked up but actually isn't. This is not I'm not necessarily talking about the Rittenhouse case here, just in general, when we talk about the law. So I guess I, I wanted to have you on to explain to us what's happening in in your opinion and how normal, abnormal, good, bad are kind of the things that we're seeing, the decisions we're seeing this judge make um, in this case so far. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So the trial, um, I think when you asked me to mm-hmm. comment on this, um, the trial had not started. Uh, the trial has now started. It has been Characterized by the defense saying the N word, a juror being dismissed (laughs) this morning, I think, was dismissed uh, for making a cruel and nakedly racist joke. Mm -hmm. Uh, And apparently the judge had a fit of pique about the media's response to his evidentiary rulings, which are what you've asked me to come Mm -hmm. discuss, um, which is itself actually one of the more unusual things about this. (laughs) how this trial is going. Um, It's always a little bit hard for me to opine on a case that is not my case. Um, I feel tentative about it. Um, This would never be my case because I would not represent a white supremacist and I am not a prosecutor Mm -hmm. uh, and would never be a prosecutor. And I was not able to look at the briefing uh, because although all of the briefing was ostensibly publicly filed. It is not actually publicly available. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with the clerk of court in Kenosha who told me that if I mailed her a request, she would fax me 
the briefing at $8.25 a page. And I said, thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> um, so I'll do my best to speak to these rulings um, and the sort of larger issues as I see them. Um, as you noted, there have been a lot of kind of salacious headlines about the evidentiary yeah. rulings in this case. Um, and I think those headlines are really, they're less about what's actually happening in the case. And they're more reflective of the sort of pearl clutching um, liberal impulse to, to notice the totally self-evident hypocrisy of the legal system. Uh, and then to conclude that because certain groups are shown more leniency, the way to resolve this hypocrisy is to make sure everyone is pleased and prosecuted and punished as viciously as the left is, which <laughs> is not actually the goal that I have. Yeah. Um, and just to clarify, when I when I talk about liberals, uh, as I as I will probably do a little bit, um, I don't mean like I mean liberal as opposed to radical um, people who are more or less okay with the underlying big systems uh, like capitalism and white supremacy and heteropatriarchy and like maybe are more concerned with the iterations of those things that are particularly gauche, but they don't actually mind the systems themselves or the way that those systems are reiterated and enforced by, for example, the American criminal legal system. Um, So, you know, I think the kind of liberal read on these rulings is not only not legally sound, um, I think it's actually incredibly dangerous. And it's watching this unfold and watching the liberal commentary on it, I think is one of the things, it's one of the ways that I can really see liberal liberals and liberalism losing credibility um, because, because they're sort of calling out this hypocrisy. And at the same time, there's a little bit of a double standard that they want to, um, that they want to propose and enforce. Um, so, okay. So I'll talk about the rulings that you discussed. Um, the first one is that the judge, um, said that the prosecution is not allowed to refer to the people that were in-house killed as victims. Um, I will remind you, as I remind all of my clients continuously, um, that the law is at best adjacent to common sense understandings of justice and uh, even, frankly, common sense understandings of reality. Um, Obviously, the people that Kyle Rittenhouse killed were victims. um, But as my beloved colleague, Sandy, reminded me, the concept of victimhood, the status of victimhood, is among the things that needs to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt at this trial. Yeah. Right? Um, and so, in in fact, this is a totally straightforward ruling. Yeah. It is a ruling that I would argue for as a defense attorney and yeah. that I would expect to win were I trying a murder case. So, you know. Yeah. This is- it, it's one of those things like, you have to overcome this this you have to overcome when you're thinking about a trial like the fact that you know he's guilty because the point of a trial is that everyone like there's a process right we don't just do street justice because that's what rittenhouse did um like we're we're you you have to like i, I one of the it is troubling to me the extent that people are like well he he should be presumed like we should be referring to the people he shot as victims before he has been adjudicated as guilty because like that's 
that's important. Like the presumption of in- innocence matters. And it's I, it's it's also something that's very unfair. Like there's a, a person in Portland, uh, Alexander Dial, who got uh, in trouble for taking a hammer out of a Nazi's hand during a rally um, and has been charged with several felonies. And because his trial kept getting delayed, spent two and a half years under pretrial conditions. So the presumption of innocence is hardly equal, but it is important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think yeah. that, you know, uh, we'll talk about this, I think, in a little bit, but that's exactly the issue, right, is that um, we need to be enforcing the equal application of the presumption of innocence, not being, you know, rapidly going after the right in the same way that we are used to uh, law enforcement and the judiciary going after the left. Um, the other ruling that the judge made um, which you mentioned was that he said that the defense is authorized to characterize the people that Rittenhouse killed as looters or rioters. If there's evidence presented that they were in fact looting and or rioting. Yeah. I would, if I were, you know, in this case, which of course I'm not, I would object to this on the grounds that it is prejudicial and bullshit. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> it's fucked up and bullshit. Yeah. Yes. That said, Mm -hmm. I am not super surprised by that ruling. Um, I would say it's likely within the sound discretion of the judge. And if, you know, and if the prosecution disagrees, it's a matter for appeal. Um, You know, I think um, one of the things the judge said about this, actually, that I think is really important and correct um, is, is that he has a, a tremendous amount of discretion in making evidentiary rulings. Um, one of the rulings he made was that he's admitting uh, the testimony of an expert witness, um, which you know I think a lot of people are also quite upset about. Um, but that said, again, this is not that unusual, and it's very difficult for him to deny that um, motion to have his evidence or his testimony admitted. Because the prosecution routinely uses use of force experts in similar mm-hmm. trials. Yeah. Um, so now we're, they're just on the other side of the table. Yeah. Um, so, you know, first of all, I get that these rulings don't make us feel good, um, but they aren't that strange. And as I said, the judge has tremendous discretion in these matters. Um, I was thinking about how to illustrate this and it occurred to me that I think the last time I was on one of your podcasts, uh, you asked me whether cocaine was illegal. Yeah. Uh, what are are we landing on that by the way? Um, So I think the first time you asked me, I was a total killjoy Mm -hmm. and was like, of course it's illegal, Robert. Um, but if I'd actually taken your question more seriously, I think a better answer probably would have been nobody knows. Um, For precisely this reason, Um, because the real question is not what the law says. The real question is uh, how or whether or against whom or to what degree and under what circumstances will that law be enforced? And these are always open questions and arguments and judges have a ton of power. This case is no exception. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, not only are these rulings pretty standard, but they're, I think, within the judge's discretion. Some of them I really dislike. Some of them make total sense to me. Um, and I think that what is happening is is not necessarily sound legal analysis 
but liberals sort of trying to argue that Rittenhouse should be more harshly prosecuted um, yeah. by saying that these specific rulings are unfair or unusual. It, it's a little bit like the the liberals crying out now because people are putting like, let's go, Brandon, on printing it on rifle receivers and saying like, well, the, yeah. the Secret Service should investigate. Well, if they do that, then some then like 30 p if they do that and like one company gets a fine. 40 people are going to go to prison for having red flags on their body armor. Like yep. that's, that's the way it, it works in this country. The, the exactly right thing. Yeah. yeah. Any, any anarchist with a 3d printer is going to immediately go to jail. Yeah. yeah that's not <laughs> like. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess the thing that I want to point out here is that what is actually unusual about this case is not these rulings. It is that Rittenhouse is going to trial at all. Mm-hmm. And the reason Rittenhouse is going to trial, is able to go to trial, is largely because this prosecution is fundamentally calculated not to be repressive. Um, so I want to kind of zoom out and get away from the weeds of yeah, these evidentiary rulings. Um, so in its simplest expression, when we talk about the difference between state and federal jurisdiction, we're saying kind of... Um, Jurisdiction for dummies, uh, overly simplified, is stuff that happens inside or only impacts a given state is typically prosecuted by the state. And if it impacts, if your offense conduct or alleged offense conduct impacts more than one state, um, then it is or can be prosecuted by the Federal Department of Justice. So Kyle Rittenhouse crossed state lines with a pretty serious firearm, and mm-hmm. he shot three people. This puts us immediately into federal jurisdiction land. Um, he did this in the context of an uprising for racial justice that has been characterized by the fact that those rising up on the side of racial justice have been subject to intense repression by the federal government. Uh, DOJ has shown themselves to be fire-breathingly enthusiastic about yeah. exercising their jurisdiction over heady offenses um, based on totally tenuous grounds um, for people on the left or who are perceived to be on the left. Um, DOJ has asserted jurisdiction in order to prosecute people for um, absolutely trivial but politically motivated offenses that would be left to the state to prosecute absent the politics of the accused. They have asserted federal jurisdiction on really flimsy bases, like that a local police building or vehicle um, belongs to a department that has received federal funding, so property damage against it becomes a federal offense. One thing they're doing that is unusual is the federal government is asserting concurrent jurisdiction to prosecute offenses. So I know there's someone in Portland um, who is uh, simultaneously being prosecuted by Multnomah and also the federal yeah. government um, for allegedly throwing some accelerant on a police building. Um, right. So it is very curious that Rittenhouse, who quite clearly did something that would, you know, fall under federal jurisdiction, is not being federally charged. And it matters a lot for how the case proceeds. Um, because the way that federal prosecutions operate uh, is that the feds will typically stack these indictments um, in a way that really puts tremendous pressure on them to plead guilty, um, which is not typically the case 
or it doesn't happen in the same way in a state prosecution. So um, you have these stacked indictments with multiple, multiple counts um, ranging, you know, all, all kinds of conduct, um, often involving, you know, a conspiracy, which can be very, very easy to prove. Um, and a guilty finding on any of those counts could be like a mandatory minimum of five to 10 years. And then if you're looking at, um, you know, a guilty on more than one or all of those counts, you're looking at a sentence, potentially concurrent sentences that are tantamount to dying in prison, yeah. right? And so this creates tremendous pressure on federal defendants to negotiate a pretrial disposition to take a guilty plea. Um, so again, Kyle Rittenhouse crosses state lines with this firearm, which gets used in the in the commission of an act of violence. And I feel extremely confident that any federal prosecutor could come up with a stack of counts against him within about 10 minutes without breaking a sweat. Um, but, you know, so, you know, if you think about him being in that position, you think through, okay, if I go to trial, what is what are likely outcomes? If Kyle Rittenhouse went to trial uh, federally, and even if he prevailed on a self-defense, right, which, which could happen, yeah. if he were found guilty on one or more of the lesser charges, he would still be looking at really, really serious time, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that's not where we are, right? Um, we are in a really weird place where like in a federal context, we wouldn't even be like talking about evidentiary rulings because uh, he would almost certainly not be going to trial. Right. Like yeah, it would be, be a plea. Sort of deal. A plea. Yeah. Um, or, you know, if he had a reasonable lawyer, he would probably be negotiating a plea. I'm curious, what do you think about because one argument I've heard and I'm certainly in no position to evaluate this personally is that. If federal charges had been placed on him, you know, when the crime you know, in 2020, Trump would have pardoned him. Um, mm. like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I've heard people argue that, that, like, well, at least with the state charges, he can't be pardoned by President Trump. Like, I, I'm in no position to really evaluate that. But I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. I honestly can't even. Yeah. Speculate about yeah. what might have happened. That is very interesting. I I do think that if the DO, if DOJ wanted to charge him at this point, I mean not. They I don't still think could, they right? But yeah. like there, I think was an opening mm -hmm. uh, for that to happen after Trump left. Yeah. I suspect there is a very interesting FOIA request to be made to DOJ. Uh, to see what kind of memo was circulated about whether or not they were going to pick this one up. Uh, they clearly declined to prosecute. Um, I The only thing that I could come up with, to be honest, and I, I looked and did not really see any meaningful discussion of this, of their uh, decision not to prosecute. Um, the only thing that occurred to me is that they might have been reluctant to assert jurisdiction over a minor. Hmm. But they can prosecute anyone over the age of 15 as an adult if they engage in violent crimes or if they are alleged to have engaged in violent crimes. So that's not it, it wouldn't entirely undermine their ability to do so. Um, so, I, you know, yeah, for whatever, perfect, reason, yeah. you know, for whatever reason they didn't, I think it is worth noting. I think it is, as I said, very curious 
Um, and it's particularly curious in light of the intense federal repression that has been faced by um, people perceived to be on the left. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so like, again, I want to be very clear. I don't, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that I want him to be federally prosecuted. Um, I, I don't particularly, I'm not interested in arguing for more prosecutions or for um, making the state the arbiter of political righteousness or um, giving the state more enforcement power or more resources. Um, you know, but, you know, and look, no shade to Kenosha, Wisconsin. All right. But um, one of the things that uh, federal prosecutors are really have a lot of experience doing is um, digital forensic investigations. And uh, in this case, one of the sort of critical questions is, did he have specific intent to go across state lines and engage in violence? And I suspect that if you were to access all of his texts and metadata and social media posts, that you could probably find evidence of that specific intent. And I think that the federal government is probably better positioned to do that than the prosecutors uh, in Kenosha. And they decided not to. Right. So, you know, it and and. That is exactly the kind of investigation that they mounted against Daniel Baker, who just he's a the yoga teacher in Tallahassee who just got three and a half years for posting vague, sort of incoherent, mutually contradictory, kind of not at all frightening. Yeah, uh, I it's not I wouldn't characterize as threats, but I I hesitate to to repeat that. You know, he posted some stuff on social media. And and now he's going to do yeah. three years in federal prison. Yeah, I, my attitude on this the the nature of what he posts is that like if prior to his prosecution you had brought that post to me, I said, well, probably not a great idea to post. But also, literally every week, a right winger in the Portland area posts something significantly more actionable. Well, right now, Chandler Pappas currently being charged with assaulting six police officers in the state capitol in Salem, uh, just announced that he's doing armed training as a convicted felon. Uh, outside of Portland uh, later this November, um, which if he's if he touches a firearm, he should go away to like based on the letter of the law, he should go to prison for years. Like that's the way the law is written. Nothing's going to happen to him. He's going to get to train people with guns and continue to carry guns. And it's it's fine for him. Um, anyway, I whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's <laughs> just, okay. I yeah. just. I guess your your listeners can't see that I have my head yeah. in my hands. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I look, what Daniel Baker did was certainly ill-advised. If Yeah, ill-advised is how had, I would characterize it. Yeah. I have clients who um, have been visited by the Secret Service or have been visited by the FBI for <laughs> saying stuff that when they call me and they're like, well, I just said this. And I'm like, yeah, I know that you're not going to actually do that, but maybe don't. <laughs> you know, it's ill-advised. Yeah, it's it's ill-advised. not. It's ill-advised, but it's protected by the very First Amendment. Mm-hmm. More or less. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've i said this before. I don't think the uh, solution to to um, being surveilled on social media is self-censorship. I think it is courage. But I also think that discretion is the better part of valor. So, yes, pick you know. your battles and maybe, yeah, um, understand 
that it's not fair, you know? Uh, yeah. And also, um, like, what do you gain by, you know, being bumptious on the internet? No. And it's one of those things where, yeah, if that guy had had a high dollar lawyer, um, if he'd if he'd been a, a rich person, yeah, maybe he would have gotten away with it. Um, who knows? But like he, it's it's he certainly would have gotten. No, I can certainly say he would have gotten away with it if he'd been a right winger because a bunch of them yes. do every single day. Um, yeah, I, I can't make any speculation about that particular sure. case, but I can say that the people who are being surveilled intensely and targeted for that kind of repression are not the people on the right. Um, the people on the right are able to make those kinds of statements and not be particularly taken seriously, even when they should be. And people on the left are presumed to be, you know, Antifa super soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I think the decision not to um, assert federal jurisdiction in the Rittenhouse case is interesting. It is noteworthy. Yeah. I'm really curious about what was going on there. Um, and it has had a sort of cascade of effects, including... Um, I doubt that the forensic digital investigation was as good as it would have been had it been federal. Uh, and I doubt that the, I mean, he's facing multiple charges, but I don't think that he would have been as likely to go to trial had he been federally charged. Um, so again, I don't, you know, this is not an argument for more federal prosecution. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, <laughs> but like, I think the breathless outrage that we're seeing in, you know, these headlines um, where people are correctly identifying the hypocrisy of the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's sort of an exercise in point missing. Um, you know, this prosecution, um, like many of the prosecutions that we see or the prosecutions that don't happen at all, um, that involve members of the dominant class or people who uphold the values of the dominant classes um, is sort of proof of concept that it's possible to effectively allocate the burden of proof to the prosecution. It's possible not to go super hard on people and uh, punish them for exercising their trial right. Um, right? I mean, it's, it's possible to treat all people accused of offenses in this way. Um, and I would much rather, I mean, obviously my ultimate goal is to uh, dismantle the entire system, you know, yeah. but, but in the meantime, uh, I don't think what we need is more vicious prosecution of the right. I think we need consistent and commensurate prosecution or lack of prosecution. We need a, you know, uh, I think that seeing the way that the right is treated should be evidence for and an argument for the possibility of um, treating all people with more leniency um, rather than, you know, intent, the intense federal repression that, that we are facing and have been facing, you know, since the Palmer raids. Um, so, yeah. 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 Um... Well, Moira, that uh, is the stuff I wanted to ask about. Is there uh, anything else um, that... Uh, I mean, sure. I, yeah, I definitely yeah, I mean, can I go off on liberals some more. Please. <laughs> um, 
please. I mean, Garrison is a huge fan of of liberals. He's got actually an, a full back tattoo of Barack what? Obama and Bill Clinton. But they're they're in the the volleyball scene from Top Gun. Um, it's an incredible tattoo. He did it all freehand on his own back. Amazing. Um, this is like the Garrison. I hope I don't receive any Stones Nixon tattoo. I hope I don't receive yes. any awful fan art now. Oh no! Someone, someone, do it! Come on, come oh, on! God. Photoshop Garrison's head onto onto Roger Stone's back Jesus. and Photoshop Nixon's head out and the volleyball no. scene from Top Gun with Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Do it! Do this it! Is... Someone's gonna do it, Garrison. This is workplace abuse. Somebody is definitely gonna do it. This is. You could sue me for this, and you'd be right to do so. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to liberals. And I might represent you. <laughs> <laughs> trial of the trial of the century. Yeah. yeah, that sounds great. I think this is a trend that we see with people who are not necessarily focused on looking at the ways that the law is always going to be used first and worst against the already most vulnerable. Right. So we've seen things like. Um, I think there's just this very well-documented liberal impulse, and I think it's very well-intentioned, but it's very dangerous um, to do things, to like assume that the system somehow works um, or should work and that it just needs to be like followed more closely. And that if we push for things like, um, if we like use the law to constrain things that I would agree are the most harmful um, excesses of bigotry, right? Yeah. Um, That the law would be a good tool for, um, for addressing violence and bigotry. Yeah. And the law does not, that is not what kind of tool the law is. Um, when we push for things like laws regulating political speech, including so-called hate speech, laws regulating what are referred to as hate crimes, laws um, regulating who can carry a firearm and mm-hmm. what they might look like, um, you know, pushes for limiting the, the places or circumstances under which you could protest um, or demonstrate, right? Um, which you know, which was done, um, there, there was a real big, um, push to, uh, forbid, uh, anti-choice activists from protesting outside of, um, clinics, right. Which I understand, right. But what Mm -hmm. actually is the upshot of doing that when we see this kind of push to use the law as a tool to enforce a particular political agenda, it is not, it, you know, it's it, it's just a very ill-conceived way to approach this um, because the law is never going to protect the most vulnerable um, while these structures of power that uphold yeah. it remain in place. And so, you know, it's just always going to be leveraged against the people who have the least amount of power. And and it, so, you know, this, this sort of response to the Rittenhouse stuff to me is just essentially um, a recuperation of, of that impulse. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a little like that old I think the joke is attributed to Gandhi. I don't know if Gandhi actually said it, but like he was asked, uh, what do you think of Christian civilization? And he said, I think it would be a wonderful idea. What do you think of the fair and equal rule of law? Sounds nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was but either Gandhi or Groucho Marx. Yeah. One of the two. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe both. Maybe both. I don't know that we okay. ever saw them together. Um, all right. <laughs> 
So I don't know. I, I it's it's obviously it's too early to it's one of those things where all of the complaining about the unfairness of the trial of Rittenhouse winds up getting um, rammed into a, a, a legal wall metaphorically uh, may seem silly in contact or in, in retrospect or he may this may be the thing that ignites a new wave of vigilantes showing up at protests with guns. Because yeah, it proves to be untouchable, like really. But the big fear is that this will set a precedent that will allow other people to use quote-unquote self-defense claims in effort just to kill black activists, to kill activists on the left, to kill people wearing, you know, black hoodies and bandanas, right? Yeah, because— That's the the big fear out of this situation. Because my my expectation is that if Rittenhouse gets off um, or even just gets very minor, like if 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 he's out of jail quickly, within about six months he's going to be a millionaire. Um, Absolutely. That's, yeah, but that's the way the right I, wing works. I would know? gently ask you to think about what happens if he doesn't, because yeah. if he's convicted, we are going to see a, a deepening of the repression that is faced by everyone on the left as well. We lose either way. Yeah. yeah I mean, no good no, choices on the table. There's no winning. I guess I think. It, I mean, part of it, I guess, depends on on what he's convicted for, um, because uh, some of the stuff has I, I would I, it seems to me some of the things he's charged with, if convicted, there's more potential negative implications across the political aisle than than with others. Mm-hmm. Um, like if if it's ruled murder, I don't know, that feels less worries. I mean, th- th- I have some concerns about the crossing state line stuff. I don't know. I mean, none of it's. None of it's good. I guess where I am is I I I remember vividly how much the the situation on the ground changed after Kenosha, just in, in, in Portland even. I mean Garrison can can back me up with this. They were there for that too. Like it was a it was a significant shift in the feeling of deadliness, you know, whenever there was a right wing, left wing confrontation. Um, yeah, and someone and died. A, someone died a few days later. Someone died a few days later in in a fucking gunfight. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know, Moira. Uh, I don't know. I I don't I don't want Rittenhouse to get off scot free for shooting three people. You're absolutely right. There's no there's no winning with the legal system. The uh, only way to win is not to play. The only way to win is not to play. So. Form your own breakaway That's civilization. Crazy. Yeah, escape. And, and also Gandhi. And Gandhi. Yeah. Uh, and and L. Ron Hubbard, take to the sea. Yes. Yeah. Always. <laughs> Look, I don't, I don't think, um, I, I'm not looking for him to prevail on the self-defense. Yeah. Um, I'm not, like, none of this is going to make me feel good. Right. Um, but I think that whether or not he is punished, whether or not he is convicted, there will be negative repercussions and all of those negative consequences will redound to the detriment of the people who are already facing the most intense federal repression. Yeah, that is, I mean, and in fairness, like this is the case of a child who killed two people and is now we are determining whether or not this child will spend the rest of their life in a cell None of this should make anyone feel good, no matter what happens. It's, it's a thoroughly I mean, bleak story. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Because this kid is sad. never going to have a chance to grow up and be like, "Oh, I was being like a 
horrible. No, person. Yeah. I don't. Ne- they'll, they'll never be be able to adjust to anything yeah. else rather was... than being this person that like yeah. culturally has been created. Right? They're they are like a yeah. cultural thing. They are an item. They're not a person anymore. Yeah. and they'll never be able to escape that. Yeah, I was a piece of shit when I was 17, and if I'd had access to an AR-15 and a chance to feel like a hero, I might have done something horrific, too. And instead, um, you were just doing sloppy steaks, instead, and it's fine. Yeah, and now it's fine. Um, have you watched I Think You Should Leave, Moira? I'm sorry? Have you watched I Think You Should Leave, Moira? No. Oh, it's good. It's good. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll check it out. Um. um I'll I'll take a look. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, thank you, Moira. Uh, this is always appreciated. Um, it's You're good welcome. to. I don't know. Like, were you? We've talked a bit about anarchism. How many of how much how much of like your belief about the way the world ought to be and is came as a result of getting into the guts of the legal system? You mean, did I become more devoted to anarchism yeah. when I went to law school? Yeah. Um, I didn't become less devoted to it. <laughs> Look, I, I remember when I was going to law school, people kept saying, oh, you're going to become really conservative. And I was mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think that's true. That seems seems fake. Uh, and in fact, I remember um, being in my criminal procedure class and just thinking, how in the world can anyone at any law school read Miranda, which is a case? The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road 
comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar runs the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. It's where someone is, you know, just horrifically abused by police in order to extract a statement. How could anybody read this case and not come out of law school with a deep contempt for law enforcement? You know, I know that it happens. I don't know how. Yeah. <laughs> Always uplifting. Yeah. I mean, it. it is, it's important to know, you know, I, when I was, when I was younger and poor uh, and dealing with things like taxes, I would often go like years without paying them. And I would like ignore debts and bills until like, like my student loans until it became like a serious problem. Cause I didn't want to look at it. I didn't even want to like look at the the scale of the issue and grapple with it. I just wanted to run away from it. And when I actually like sat down and and figured out my situation and and like really came to understand like what what I needed to do in order to deal with those problems, like it was stressful and it sucked and it was fucking days of work. But getting understanding the scope of the problem I'd gotten myself into was a necessary step to like fixing the situation. And I think the same is true with like this kind of shit. It's not fun. Nobody who is, I think, a reasonable person like wants to dig into the U.S. justice system and get into the guts of it because it's bleak as hell. But you need to because it's it's you can't escape it unless you flee the country and live in a place with no extradition treaties Um, or international waters. I feel like you're talking about a lot of the people you've profiled. Yeah. In your uh, other podcasts. I mean, Ecuador does sound nice. I'm sure it's lovely this time mm-hmm. of year. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. We need to be able to have a sort of clear-eyed assessment so that we can yeah. accurately identify and effectively address the problems, unfortunately, I think the problems are so um, 
all encompassing that I, I don't know that there's, I would venture to say that there yeah. is not a real totalizing solution no. that doesn't involve total abolition. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Abolition but in the is, meantime, I mean, yeah. we, I think there are, there are things that we can do to, yeah. to advocate for our clients or yeah. and, my and clients, things- as an individual, you can do to protect yourself. And that's why it is important to have some sort of working understanding um, because you can keep yourself and the people around you at least somewhat safer if you do understand the beast, um, even though your goal is to is to destroy it. Uh, and that's, a, I think, the only reasonable goal when you really understand it. It still behooves you to to understand it. I mean, it's the same with like. It's the same with what, what Garrison and I do with the fucking Nazis, spending all this time in weird telegram channels, like reading what they're <laughs> trying to understand them, because you do need to understand them to effectively c- combat them. Well, um, it's not for the faint of heart. No, no. I mean, what we're doing. Is, yeah, neither is what you do. <laughs> um, the message is, is that we're all well adjusted and we're all we're doing all, great. We're all doing we're sa- great. We're saving up for that boat. We're Nobody that has boat. any secondary trauma. No. There's no secondary trauma in international waters, Moira. I have that. Uh, that 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 my my old friend LRH told me that. Just you in the open sea, and a bunch of twenty year olds searching for gold that I buried in a past life. Ah, oh, living the dream. Fun. Yeah. He is both fascinating and terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Um, just just well, like our just like our legal system. And that, our legal and, that, system. and that wraps up this episode. Yeah, that brings us around. Um, Moira, do you have anything you want to plug? Any any place uh, maybe our listeners could could send donations that would help somebody who's throwing uh, themselves I against a wall at the moment? Would certainly suggest that people look into whatever um, bail funds are local to them. There's one I know in New York called COVID Bailout NYC that's mm-hmm. – um, doing incredible work right now to get people off Rikers Island, uh, which is having a humanitarian crisis of just unbelievable scope. Um, It sounds to me like the conditions on Rikers right now are at least as bad as the conditions that led to the Attica uprising. Um, So I would always, always um, direct people to give money to local bail funds I also want to plug the National Lawyers Guild uh, Anti-Federal Repression uh, or Federal Defense Hotline, which is 212-679-2811, uh, 212-679-2811. If you call that number or you can call that number if you are having uh, unwanted contact with federal agents and you can be advised by an attorney who is me about your rights and responsibilities with respect to um, federal agents. And I will try to uh, connect you with appropriate resources in your area. Um, This is not the hotline to call if you've been injured by a police officer. Um, This is the hotline Mm -hmm. to call if you have been visited by the FBI. Um, Don't talk to cops. If you are contacted by law enforcement, say I am represented by counsel, please leave your name and number and my lawyer will call you. Uh, and remember that you cannot talk your way out of an arrest, but you can talk your way into a conviction. All great points, all great things to be aware of. 
Um, speaking of great things to be aware of, be aware that we'll be back tomorrow, unless this is a Friday, in which case we'll be back next week from now until the heat death of the universe. Thank you so much, Maura. You're so welcome. Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real-life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit adoptuskids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council. Make sure to check out Drink Champs, your number one music podcast on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Hosts NORE and DJ EFN sat down with artist and icon Ye, which Vulture called one of 2021's most significant interviews. I literally had to go like Thanos, and I don't want to have to be the villain, but when I went and did the Donda thing, Ye returned. And everybody had to sit back and watch the real leader. Check out Drink Champs' conversation with Ye and many more legendary artists each and every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about the continual state of bad things happening and how sometimes you can make them less bad or not happen and... Today we're going to, I'm Christopher Wong, by the way, and today we're going to be talking about Bosnia, a place where things went about as bad as they possibly can, and about how they're heading in very scary directions now, and with us to talk about this is Arnesa Kustrit. Arnesa is a genocide survivor and a academic expert on genocide in general. Anessa, uh, how, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing uh, okay, I think, all things considered. Yeah. <laughs> you know, being sort of bombarded on a daily basis with, you know, uh, possible threats um, and talks about, you know, a new conflict, war brewing in the Balkans is the thing, not an easy thing to contend to Yeah, definitely with, not. But yeah, but other than that, I'm doing great. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you could be here with me today because the the Balkans, extremely complicated place, which I guess is true of most places. But yeah, and so I guess that that's that's where I wanted to go with my f- first question because reading about what's happening now, my first instinct was go back to the Dayton Accords, but I'm actually not sure but that's that that's that's even the best place to start and so i want i wanted to i guess ask you if so okay so if, if if you're coming into looking at the balkans for the first time and you're trying to understand what's going on now where do you think is the best place to start on it because 
I think, you know, the best, God, it's It's so hard. Yeah. We're we're talking about so much history, honestly. But the thing is, let's, you know, let's start with the death of Tito. That's always a good place, I think, because that's really when things started to kind of shift in the Balkans and the former, you know, socialist Yugoslavia was really once Tito died and his place became, you know, empty as this sort of unifying factor of all the various ethnicities and nationalities within Yugoslavia. You know, once he was gone, that sort of left this vacuum that needed to be filled. And unfortunately, instead of being filled by another socialist, you know, pro-equality, pro-unity leader, it was filled with a nationalist vacuum. Um, which is kind of where we still are, unfortunately. Um, you know, it started obviously with with little things, I think, with little sort of conversations and, and little subtle, I guess, you know, ethno-nationalist rhetorics. And it just kind of like grew and spiraled from there. And obviously... You know, that sort of thing led to Milosevic in Kosovo giving his infamous speech, uh, which kind of really gave that full-fledged stamp on, okay, yes, this is a ultra-nationalist, you know, ethno-nationalist president that we now have um, who's threatening war uh, across the other ethnicities. What do we do next? Um And at that point, you know, that's when you sort of see the other countries start to secede, you know, Slovenia, Croatia, they're attacked by Serbia. And then obviously, eventually, it goes down to Bosnia. Um, And yeah, I mean, it starts with the ethno-nationalism, as it always does in in the Balkans, I think. (laughs) Um, You know, I I don't think we're, we're anything special in terms of having conflict with our neighbors look at france and england or (laughs) or america and mexico or anyone really it's just you know i think people make it sound as if we're special or we have these ancient hatreds but you know that's not really true it it all comes down to the freaking politics and the leaders and unfortunately you know milosevic was removed but his policy is um beliefs continued to kind of stick around you know i i think uh you know people think of people like milosevic and radovan karadzic who were you know genocidal war criminals as a thing of the past but really you look at you know the serbian president um Vucic, um or the republika srpska president milorad dodik and they're really just a continuation of Karadzic and Milosevic. Um, so nothing, you know, has fundamentally changed since Tito died, except, you know, we got some new agreements. Uh, we got some new territories, some new ethnic lines drawn up and um, new pretty buildings, too. We have those now <laughs> as well, but we don't really have that coexistence Um at least not on paper, not in politics, certainly. I want to go back for a second to, I guess, the moment of Tito dying, because that's always been a sort of interesting 
thing looking at it for me because I remember, I mean, you know, so from, from studying Chinese history, right, that there's a period where in the 70s where it's okay, like everyone's looking for reform in China and, you know, what what you would consider like the sort of the, the, the I guess you could call them the, I don't know, left and right is complicated in China, but, yeah, you know, like there, there are a lot of sort of what you would call like the sort of left socialist, like democratic reformers who are, who, you know, I mean, people, people like they're looking at Yugoslavia as a model and they're going, oh, we can have like workers participation and we can have this, we can have these like democratic enterprises. And then that just implodes. And, and, and yeah, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about more about that because my, my very limited understanding of it, it was, is like, there's an economic crisis from the oil shocks. And then once Tito dies, it's just like the wheels come off the whole system. I mean, that's a really good way of like putting it. Um, you know, like life in Yugoslavia, I don't think was like ever perfect. And I definitely yeah. don't think it was a perfect system. I think, you know, me being a Bosnian who was born to very, I think, pro-Yugoslav parents. Um, I just like many of my, you know, fellow Yugoslavs or ex-Yugoslavs have a tendency to look at Yugoslavia with like rose-colored lenses. You know, we think about the the coexistence, the unity, the multi-ethnic part, the uh, worker-owned, you know, socialist models, the fact that our parents um, you know, we're able to provide for their families and take vacations and travel and, um, you know, get together and all these sort of wonderful things. But in the background, really, in the sort of depths of the, you know, politics and the, the economic issues were kind of always there. Um, you know, the one thing that Tito did was obviously he relied unlike I think other socialist uh, leaders of his time is, you know, he basically worked with anyone, you know, the non-aligned movement, but also with the West, uh, with Europe, you know, so uh, he wasn't very picky choosy. I think yeah. his <laughs> ultimate goal was, you know, the betterment of the country by kind of any means necessary. Um, but I think you know, he made mistakes just like um, other leaders do. And I think obviously we had, you know, two issues. One, he was sick, he was dying. Um, and, and two, there was an economic crisis happening. Um, and three, then we had like the economic reforms, which really sh shifted the entire, I mean, they just, they very much shifted the, the, the system that, the Yugoslav people were very much used to. Um, it became more and more prior, you know, privatized after his death. Mm -hmm. um, and and you know, Milosevic, he was he was a banker. He was a businessman. He was he was who he was. Um, and I don't think that he ever really pretended to be a socialist. Yeah, <laughs> which is why I get so upset when yeah. American, American leftists call him a socialist or call him an anti-imperialist because those aren't even words that, you know, he himself would have really used to describe himself, I think. But, <laughs> but I think, you know, there was just, it was that sort of thing where there's an economic crisis brewing. They have no ways to really fix it. 
people are broke, people are starving, suddenly the ownership, the worker, you know, owned sort of model is being shifted to a more privatized model and people are just not happy. What's a good way to distract from that? Yep. <laughs> the nationalism. Oh. You know, it's just, we see it happen everywhere. It's yep. not a new, it, it, it's not like a new, you know, tactic. It's a tactic that everyone has utilized, blame yep. it on the other. Um, so Yugoslavia didn't really have, you know, immigrants that they could blame it on, but they had Muslims. Yep. And so, and they had the Kosovo, you know, Albanians and the Bosnians, and that was, you know, enough. And suddenly the conversation really shifted. And obviously I'm simplifying all of this. Yeah. A yeah, lot. This is... <laughs> it's so much more complicated. Um, and but you know there there are books out there and 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 uh, yeah. that obviously go into a great you know level of detail um, into the actual sort of breakup. So uh, I can give some recommendations later. But um, yeah, but I think in 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 that sort of very simplistic kind of sense is there was an economic crisis happening. A good way to sort of distract that was the use of ethno nationalism, and it just kind of spiraled from there. I think, you know, what Milosevic and what people like Milosevic always want is more power yeah. for themselves. And so his whole thing wasn't really ever about keeping Yugoslavia intact as Yugoslavia. It was keeping this vision of a greater Serbia alive. Because the thing is, you know, if we had not had a person like Milosevic, if we just had somebody who was, you know, the second Tito, maybe more or less worse or better, who cares? I think people would have been fine. I think, you know, I don't see this like war breaking out. But instead we had Milosevic, who was like way more concerned about consolidating power, exerting that control. And when he realized that he could use ethno-nationalism to get to his goals, of course he was going to use that, of yep. course. Like who wouldn't, you know, we see it today with like what Trump did. He utilized, you know, Muslims and immigrants and refugees and black people, all his scapegoats to distract from all of the other things that are wrong with him, his leadership and the overall country. And Milosevic did the same. He just did what any other politician did. And, you know, that's the thing. I, I think, you know, in thinking about Bosnia, Croatia, Slovenia and all these countries that started to secede, I think if they had felt comfortable with you know, staying in a country that is multi-ethnic, at least in the case of Bosnians. I'm not going to speak for the Slovenians or Croatians because they have mm. their own, I think, complicated identity. But yeah. with Bosnians, our, our thing collectively, I think, while we're not a monolith, not monolith, but collectively was always, we are united. We are multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multicultural. And it's such a big part of like our entire history and identity. And so if the choice is being, you know, under Serb control, being secondary citizens, not having that equality, not having that multi-ethnicity, of course, we're not going to take that choice. Yeah. Of course, people are going to want to, you know, when, when you have like that, uh, you know, that boot on your neck of saying like, we're going to control you. We're going to take your land and we're going to basically rule over you. Nobody wants to deal with that. 
and you know, unlike a lot of the other countries in in former Yugoslavia, Bosnia really was the most multi-ethnic. It had one of the highest rates of you know mixed uh, ethnic marriages and multi-religious marriages, and that kind of remains true even today. So, especially in places like Sarajevo, Mostar, Banja Luka, you know, the bigger cities, it, it has this very proud history of, you know, coexistence and multi-ethnic coexistence. So I think what happened for so many people was just a huge amount of shock. Um, my own family, so many people in my own family just did not think it could happen there. They grew up with this idea of a united, you know, multi-ethnic Yugoslavia, yep. brotherhood and unity. These are our neighbors, our friends, our teachers, our lovers, you know, whatever. They're, they work with us. They live next to us. Of course, they're not going to, you know, turn against us. And I think even while all the politicians were fear-mongering, while, you know, Milosevic and Karadzic were sort of leading their campaigns of, you know, uh, especially Islamophobic propaganda, um, you know, in, in newspapers, on the radio, on TV, any chance that any speech that they gave, they talked about how the Muslims were coming, we were going to make their daughters wear hijabs, we were going to take over, we were going to kill them, you know, before... That's why they have to kill us because yeah. they don't kill us. We're going to kill them. It was this whole, you know, really brilliant propaganda campaign in so many ways that has now been replicated in so many other yeah. countries. Well, can, can we talk about that specifically for yeah. a second? Because I think there's something interesting in the the way that, like the, the the way that you get people to do a genocide always seems to be is like you 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 can't. It's extremely hard to get someone to like just murder their neighbor because they don't like them. You have to do this like they're about to exterminate us, and that's why we have to like strike first. And that, I, yeah, that 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 aspect of it, I think, is is something that I see a lot when when I do this. And yeah, you you have you have done <laughs> infinitely more genocide studies. So I want to hear yeah what you yeah. Think about I this. mean, here's the thing. Um, I, I it's so funny. I gave like an interview um, on this specific topic. I don't know, like two years ago. And I remember turning to to the guy who was interviewing me because he was just like, his look on his face was, I just don't understand. Like, I don't, I can't wrap my mind about how people could do that to their friends, neighbors, students, you know, uh, people they were sworn to like protect and, and people they lived with their entire lives. How could they do that? Well, you know, I turned to him and I said, yeah, I mean, if I told you right now, go kill him. You know, you probably wouldn't. But if I came to you day in and day out, and I slowly started to kind of whisper in your ear, and I started to tell you, you know, he's been really, really, I don't know, he's been saying a lot of stuff about you. He's been quite negative. Or, I don't know, you know, do you think he's kind of acting weird? I feel like he's, he might be planning something. He might be planning to take over your house. He might be planning to... I don't know, probably attack your sister. I think he's going to kill your sister. I think he might make your sister wear her job. So it's these very like slow, subtle things. And that's the thing that people don't understand. You know, violence never interrupts, like uh, never erupts out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it it's always planned. 
it brews and it brews and it brews and then it explodes, you know, then there's the, the thing, but it, it comes slowly. And that's how it was in Yugoslavia. It wasn't this sudden, you know, oh yes, we're brothers and sisters forever. Go Tito, go Yugoslavia to, you know, oh, I hate you because you're Muslim and I hate you because you're a Serb and I hate you because you're a Croat. No, that was not the case. The case was that this was a very slow campaign of propaganda that started in the 80s, almost immediately after Tito's death, let's say. And it started very slow. Started with the, you know, with the sort of, I think, uh, disenfranchisement of the Kosovo Albanians um, and kind of the targeting of them. Um, and again, yes, there was this economic component on of it, but the way they wanted to kind of sidetrack that was, you know, well, you're you're hungry because the Kosovo Albanians are not, you know, and they're taking your jobs. Again, similar, uh, you know, tactics that we, we see even yep, today. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, so it's not it's not that much different. But yeah, you know, it starts slow. And and the Milosevic and the Karadzic and the Mladic kind of campaigning was, God, it was brutal. I mean, and like I always say, it was kind of brilliantly executed in that it really got to people so much that then, again, you know, they turned neighbor against neighbor. It was, it was subtle in the beginning. It was that sort of, what are the Muslims up to? Can we trust them? Can you trust your neighbor? Can you trust the Muslims? You know, talking about Islamization, talking about Aliazid Begovic's book that he wrote when he was like, I don't know, 18 or or whatever, like, and, you know, talking about World War II, this was another thing. Like, like everybody knows that there was a period in World War II where, uh, you know, a lot of Serbs were killed by the Ustasha uh, and by the, you know, Nazi collaborationists. And I think, Obviously, that's a real fear for, you know, for a certain group of people who yeah. went through that. So there was a lot of that as well. You know, that's going to happen again. That's going to happen again. Meanwhile, there was no grand plan. There was never even talks of, you know, committing violence or even, you know, talks of, you know, seceding from Yugoslavia or anything. It was all, it was all set in motion by the Serbian leadership, you know, and I think that's what people don't understand. The Bosnian leadership, while not perfect, were simply reacting to what the Serbian leadership was in many ways making them do. And, and that's kind of what, you know, what happens in these situations, you know, they kind of push you and push you and push you until they're able to get, you know, some sort of rise out of you or a response out of you or, or get you on that sort of offensive where you have to defend yourself, you have to defend your identity, you have to defend who you are, you have to justify it also in many ways. So yeah, the, you know, this sort of propaganda campaign, God, there was, you know, obviously the funny things were like things like they're going to make you wear the hijab, but it was also very insidious because they would target like these, you know, villages where they were like Bosnians and Serbs, you know, living together. Mm -hmm. They're quite small, but they knew that like in the village, obviously you usually have a gun or, you know, shotgun because of the animals or, you know, working or whatever. So they would like target them specifically with like the, you know, the radio. And Jesus. instead of like the big cities, like they worked mm -hmm. up to the big 
cities, but they really started in like specific sort of areas, like in Eastern Bosnia, especially because there was like a lot of, um, I think majority Muslim like villages in that area that would also have like nearby Serb villages. So yeah, I mean, there was that, there was, you know, then sort of taking over all the radio stations and, um, kind of going full force I think like in the sort of early days of the war like we're talking April May of 1992 they you know they would get people like pretending that they were Bosnians they were actually Serbs and they would like talk about how they went to you know kill all Serbs or something like that um, there was also when they were like having people in concentration camps where they like started kind of putting them in those concentration camps initially, they they would make the victims in the concentration camps, the Muslims, um, basically, you know, say that, oh, they're just there as a refugee and the Serbian army is like protecting them and they're yep. making them feel really welcome and stuff like that. So it was right at the beginning between especially 89 to like 92 the propaganda was so visible and it really escalated and it was like suddenly everywhere and you would hear Karadzic and Milosevic talk about you know the Muslims and the things that we wanted and, and you know the things that the goals that we had which after all were not you know Nobody was saying it. There wasn't like a single person that was saying these things that they yeah. were attributing to us. But that didn't matter. What they were just doing was instilling enough fear and enough doubt in the population to eventually get them to take up arms when the time comes. And unfortunately, that's precisely what happened. When the yeah. time came, you know, a lot of people did take up arms. Whether or not they wanted to, they had enough of that doubt and fear sowed in their minds over the course of you know several years that they ended up feeling like I have to protect myself. And I'm not saying that's the case for every Serb person. I think some, a lot of, you know, especially in, in um, higher leadership positions, a lot of them were just sociopaths who wanted to kill. And I don't think it mattered why or, or how, because you're always going to get those kind of people. Yeah. But I think when we're talking about how how that shift happened so fast we have to obviously discuss the the propaganda the huge amount of propaganda that went into the you know implementing it so i guess it was like such a tangent oh my god no it's okay no no that was that was that was really great yeah and i think you know yeah i mean i guess like i i i think it's incredibly important for everyone to understand that propaganda works like if you just say something over and over and over again, like it it does, you know, event eventually it pays off, and you know the the the, the quote unquote payoff here is the genocide. And I guess, yeah, I'm not sure how far into detail you want to get into this here, but but I think one thing I want to kind of focus on because I, I think from from reading what you've been ta- ta- saying about this. The, the, this wound up being a big deal with like why things are sort of still fucked now which is that like the international response to this like i mean one of the things i was always just like haunted by is there's this quote by 
Mitterrand, who's the uh, prime minister of France, he's like this, he's supposed to be the socialist. He's like the guy that like they finally put in power after like all of the stuff in the sixties. And he has this line about like, it, I, I, I'm sorry, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I'd pulled up the exact quote, but it, it, it's, it, it's basically like, I, I know the quote. Yeah. Do you, do you want us to say it? I don't remember the exact. I, yeah. I know the quote. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, what was it? peaceful but necessary reconstruction of a christian europe yeah um and bosnia does not belong so i remember that very specifically it's really stayed with me for such a long time because he said that at a time where the bosnian muslims were just completely defenseless um they were being dragged away to concentration camps the massacres were already well underway we're not talking about Srebrenica in 95 we're talking about Visegrad Sarajevo uh Foča Gorazda um even Srebrenica in 92 you know this is all in 1992 um the things that happened in places like Bučko and Zvornik and all these like places that you that i think the vast majority of people don't really know about and hear about like in uh Visegrad a lot of my family is from there. Within a span of three months, that entire town, that entire town, which was once almost entirely Bosniak Muslim, um, was ethnically cleansed. And that was done through forced deportations, concentration camps, mass rapes and rape camps of women, and obviously a lot of murders. You know, So we're talking about one small town that took you know, three, three months. And my family, when it comes to that town, um, on both my mother's and my father's side, interestingly enough, has like such a long history. My parents fell in love there when they were like kids. So, you know, they, you know, my grandmother's house was there. My grandfather's house was there um, on like both sides. And they, you know, so is this beautiful little town uh, where, you know, Bosnians and Bosniaks and Serbs and Croats lived and Jews and Roma. And, you know, my parents talk about the beauty of it and this wonderful sort of experience that they had when they lived there. My my mom is from Sarajevo um, and so am I as well, obviously. But Mishigrad was like the place that she would go kind of like for the weekend just because of the family that we had there. Um, so very special, I think, in her heart, my grandpa's. Um, heart as well and you know within it's just like so hard to like fathom that within just a few months that town was completely ethnically cleansed and that the international community knew this and did nothing you know there is in I believe it's in the Clinton tapes as well but there's this thing about how they had provided aerial footage of the massacres that were being that were being enacted in places like Butchko and Zvornik, where, oh my God, the paramilitary Serb forces did some horrifying acts of like violence and torture against the civilians. Um, And they had, you know, showed it to the Clintons and they showed it to the French and the English and they did nothing, you know, they, they knew in 1992, that a genocide was unfolding, um, and the Dayton Peace Agreement wasn't signed until 1995. So the international um, community, I think, has just as much of a responsibility in the, you know, the genocide of the Bosniaks 
as Serbia does because they sat there and they watched when they had all the power to stop it. They always had the power to stop it. They had the power to stop it before it even before even one person got killed. Um, and and two, they it's not even that they just watched. It's that they purposely left the Muslims defenseless because Serbia had all the Yugoslav army, yep, all the weapons, all the you know everything, all the tools that they needed to commit genocide. They already had it. They had all the arsenal, everything. Um, and you, you, the Yugoslav army was like the most powerful in the region at the time. And I think the fourth, third, third or fourth most powerful in like the Europe, Turkey area. So, you know, quite a powerful army. And there was Bosnia, which had no weapons, no military. Um, you know, you see these pictures of like, civilians fighting against you know tanks and and uh, mortar shells and snipers and it's like these you know youths basically in like converse and jeans and like an army jacket playing soldier <laughs> because yeah. that's all we had you know we had the homemade weapons we had um you know how to make your own bomb books kind of thing and and trying to basically defend ourselves with anything that we could. Um, they specifically did not lift the arms embargo, knowing that they were leaving us defenseless. Like they, they just knew there was no way, there was no doubt on everything that we have read about the international community response, everything that Clinton, Mitterrand, John Mayer, Major, Major, um, not mayor, uh, major have said, uh, you know, about it during that period shows us that they absolutely knew that we were defenseless, you know, and this wasn't, you know, a lot of people say, I didn't know about the Bosnian genocide, but it was discussed. You know, I've looked at the archived footage. Um, it was talked about on television. It was brought up in parliament and in Senate. There was people at the time who were like, why are we leaving the Bosnians defenseless? Why are we, you know, not helping them? Uh, why are we allowing them to be led into slaughter? This is genocide, blah, blah, blah. So even as early as 92, 93, there was still people who knew about this stuff, were telling the leaders, but nothing. Yeah, you know? I, I think, I, I think like that part also, like it's it's not just that like they did nothing, like they, they, they like they did worse than do nothing. Like, I mean, Mitter Mitterrand's actively cheering it on, like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the arms embargo is just like the arms embargo if, if you're applying an arms embargo on a conflict where one people one side has tanks and the other side has like molotovs like you you are actively supporting one of the sides and and i think that like that just like is completely lost in how like almost everyone seems to talk about this now because there's like you know because because when you sort of get like interventions later like People are like, oh, look, the West was like planning to intervene here the whole time. And it's like, no, like they were, they were literally cheering, like, like Mitterrand was yeah. cheering. Like, it's like, it's so frustrating because, you know, we, you take what we know about, I, and here's the thing. I know that Islamophobia escalated after 9-11, but Islamophobia has existed for a very long time. Yep. And I think talk to the black Muslims of America 
they will tell you more, you know, better than than I could ever tell you about the history of Islamophobia in in the United States. So Islamophobia was always an aspect of, of life. And in Europe, Islamophobia, just like anti-Semitism, I mean, yep. it is like the staple of European cultural cuisine, so to say. Yeah, it's, it's like, just, like, it's like, yeah, it's like, like there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, they have, they have like, they have like the, like the, the triforce of European, of European civilization yeah. is anti-Semitism, uh, Islamophobia, and hating the Roma. Yep. It's like, those, those are just like, like, yeah. Par for the force. And so I think this sort of thing about the explicitness of European leadership, especially at the time in, in, you know, effectively ensuring that we were killed off because a Muslim country in Europe could not exist. Yep. And that's the thing that they said, literally said a Muslim country in Europe cannot exist. Like the fact that that was so open and brazen, like kind of takes me back, but it really like tells you how much Islamophobia formed i think the international community response on this and it's so interesting to me now i think i've seen it over the past i would say especially five years this sort of leftist genocide denial yeah. this sort of leftist anti-imperialist kind of defense of milosevic and oh they were the you know the serbs were the actual victims blah 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 nato blah blah, blah western in- intervention and I'm just like, oh my God, read a book, read an article from yeah. that time, read their actual quotes. There's no way that you can actually convince me that Europe, Fortress Europe, and the United States of America would do anything that would benefit, you know, the Muslims. Well, this is what was one of the things I think was is, is really interesting to me about the way that the sort of like left genocide nihilism works. Is that it, like it always seems to be rooted in Islamophobia. Like, and I, I remember started seeing this. With Bosnia too, where they're like, "Oh yeah, well, it's 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 because well, it's okay." They have two things. One, it's like, well, the, the Bosnians were Nazis, but the second one was that, oh well, the the, the Bos the Bosnians were like all jihadists, yeah. and it's like like it's, it's the exact same thing you see with China, and it's like, oh, it's because all the Uyghurs are uh, like Salafi jihadists, ISIS, CIA, and it's like, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's honestly laughable at this point. It really is, and it also just. You know, obviously I'm a leftist, you know, I'm, I'm going to cheer the left on to an yeah. extent, but that is my red line. The genocide denialism yeah. really is my red line. And the reason it's, it's, you know, my red line isn't just because I'm a genocide survivor, but because it's like, oh, for God's sake, the, the, the data, the statistics, the research, the forensic, the uh, analysis, the specific quotes, videos, articles, uh, you know, all of those things exist and are out there and all you have to do is actually do your research and you will find out that actually, no, you're in the wrong. And the other thing is what you just said about this sort of thing of painting, you know, the Muslims as like the Nazis and the, you know, the extremists. Um, You know, the thing about like the Bosnian Muslims is like, we don't hide the fact that there were people of our community that participated in Nazi Ustasha crimes. There isn't this, goal of concealing those crimes Mm -hmm. of minimizing the crimes or pretending that they were right um there is i'm sure a fringe group of people who who defend these kinds of people like there is a fringe but i'm talking about the collective sort of bosnian um you know state level response as well as like a an individual response is that the you know the the nazi division 
had like 17,000 Bosnian soldiers and there's millions of Bosnians in the country, the vast majority ended up joining the partisans and stood against the Nazis. And the thing is, you can't, you, when it comes to Yugoslavia and World War II and the Holocaust, you can't just say that the Bosnians were Nazi collaborationists because the thing is, so were the Serbians, so were the Serbs, so were the Croats. At that time, let's be honest, who the hell wasn't a Nazi collaborationist? Now, this doesn't excuse it. Absolutely not. But what it does sort of show is that that history, that period um, in Yugoslav history is really complicated because, you know, you had the Ustasha um, and then you had the Chetniks. And then there's a period where the Chetniks were against the Ustasha, right? Because like the Ustasha were killing Serbs and Romans and Jews. But then the Chetniks turn around and they're, you know, these Serb nationalists, they start killing the Jews and the Roma. Yeah. And then they start working with the Ustasha to hunt down the Jews and the Roma. And then they start working with them to stand against the, you know, the, the Tito's partisans. Um, meanwhile, you know, Tito's partisans had a multi-ethnic coalition. Yeah, yeah. Again, we're talking about Serbs, Bosnians, uh, Roma, Jews, uh, Croats. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! 
I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Albanians, you know, all sorts of people who were very, like, you know, anti-Nazism. Yeah. Pro, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna win. We're gonna rebuild our our country. We're gonna you know make this beautiful sort of you know multi-ethnic kind of state, which they did, which is amazing. But yeah, but it, it is a complicated sort of piece of history. So you can't really say, oh, yes, they're the Nazi collaborationists because um, at some point or not, everybody was. And at some point or not, everybody was also. Present. Yeah, yeah. It's like like it's when, 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 you, when you start getting into like. It, it, it becomes this like, you know, it becomes a way of just of getting people to. I don't know how to describe it. it like, it, it, you know, when when. When it starts being like this specific ethnic group as a whole is responsible for all of these crimes, it's like no, they're not. Like that's that's not that's not how this works. Like it's not like 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 there, like there, there are like there yeah there, there's going to be people in the ethnic group who did things that were awful. There's also going to be people, especially especially in, in in a situation like this. There's there's a lot like a lot of like probably more people who fought them. Yeah, and, and that I mean- like. Yeah, that's such an interesting statement because I I'm gonna compare it to the Bosnian response after the genocide, which has consistently been, no, we don't believe that every single Serb is bad, yeah, and we are only talking about those that took place, took part in these crimes, and those that concealed them, and that has always been the collective and state level response of all Bosnians. Now you have to think about, I have a friend who's. Who, who's 99, 99 members of her family were killed in Srebrenica in July of 1995. That's an absorbent number of people. Yeah. These were women, children, and men, and elderly. There was no discrimination when it came, comes to her. I've sat with her as she's read all the names of her, you know, killed family members. That woman, with all the pain that she survived, with being there as a young girl in the midst of genocide, in the midst of these horrifying crimes, has never once, publicly or privately, to me, said, yes, all Serbs are the same. Yes, all of them are war criminals. Yes, all of them hate us. 
absolutely not. And the thing is, I think about myself as well. Like, you know, my earliest childhood memory is me being shot at by a sniper, knowing my father was in a concentration camp, knowing that my grandmother was just killed by a bomb, um, knowing that, you know, my biological dad was dying in a hospital from an attack and my mother could also be killed because she was pregnant with my brother at the time. And it, so these are my earliest childhood memories. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not very happy memories. And I know why those things happened. You know, I know why I was being shot at by a sniper and it was because I was Bosnian. It was because I was Muslim and because I was seen as the enemy, even though I was, you know, a little kid at, you know, six, seven years old um, and absolutely not a threat to anyone. And nobody should have been shooting at me. They did anyway. Even though that happened, I never had that feeling of all Serbs are awful. All Serbs are, you know, I'm going to paint them all with a brush. But a lot of them, unfortunately, especially on the, you know, the, the, the ultra-nationalists that continue to not just deny the genocide, but also glorify it and celebrate yeah. it, they do paint everyone with the same brush, you know? And, and, and the worst thing, the funniest thing is that they paint themselves with the same brush, you know? They, they think that they get to speak for every single Serb person. Yep. Um, and that's the tragic path. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I I get accused of like constantly talking shit about Serbs. And I'm like, I absolutely am not. I'm talking about the nationalists and I will call out all the nationalists, whether they're Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian, American, whatever. But we're talking about, you know, what you're doing to me and your response to my criticism of nationalism is actually the thing that's ruining your reputation. Yeah, it's it's the it's the ethno nationalist gambit. It's it's you have you have to conflate all of the individual people, the ethnic group, and the state. They all they all have to be this like you know this supposed to be this like organic totality, and it's not true. It's just not. But that's you know that's 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 the sort of it's it's the modus operandi behind their entire ideology, and it's what they deploy. You know, it's, it's what they deploy when they do genocides. It's what they deploy when they have to sort of like, you know, sort of promote it. Yeah. openly or less openly afterwards yeah it's like that justification it's how they justify it I yeah think, you know and like we all know about the 10 stages of genocide uh, but uh, my colleague um who's brilliant <laughs> actually has often talked about that denialism is not really the final stage of genocide it is, in fact, triumphalism. Um, and that's what we're actually seeing in Bosnia. You know, we're not... I get genocide denialism from American leftists and, like, <laughs> British leftists who are on a certain spectrum and of a certain... Yeah. I don't get genocide denialism from ethno-nationalist Serbs. What I get from them, actually, is very openly celebrating and threatening another genocide they're not in my mentions saying oh there was no genocide yeah uh, they're in my mentions saying no which is basically a slogan that says knife wire srebrenica and it's like basically a threat that another srebrenica will occur they're in my mentions in my emails and in my dms sending me threats about how they can't wait till I'm put in a rape camp again, how they can't wait till they kill my family, till Sarajevo gets bombed again, how, you know, we're, they're going to finish the job 
how Ratko Mladic is a hero because he killed all those, you know, uh, people in Srebrenica and Sarajevo and Vyshegrad. Um, Karadzic is a hero because he did the same. Milosevic is a hero because he believes in a greater Serbia. These people don't hide it. Yep. Um, and that's the thing. So it's, it's, it's very, like, just today, you know, I, first thing in the morning, I open my Twitter and the first thing that I see is, uh, a Bosnian activist um, arrested for protesting the Ratko Mladic mural, which the Serbian police were guarding. They were guarding a mural, a get like a mural of a war criminal who committed genocide, who who everybody knows committed genocide. A mural glorifying him. They were got the police were guarding, you know, the mural and inflicting damage on innocent civilians who were there to you know protest against the mural and so i think that really tells you so much about the issue in the balkans this has been it could happen here join us tomorrow for part two of this interview in which we discuss the dangers of what's currently happening in bosnia in the meantime find us on twitter at happened here pod and you can find us on twitter and instagram for the rest of our shows at cool sound media I'm Colleen Witt. Join me, the host of Eating While Broke podcast, while I eat a meal created by self-made entrepreneurs, influencers, and celebrities over a meal they once ate when they were broke. Today, I have the lovely AJ Crimson, the official princess of Compton, Asia. Kidding, and Asia. This is The Professor. We're here on Eating While Broke, and today I'm going to break down my meal that got me through a time when I was broke. Listen to Eating While Broke on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What grows in the forest? Trees? Sure. Know what else grows in the forest? Our imagination, our sense of wonder, and our family bonds grow too. Because when we disconnect from this and connect with this, we reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about bad things happening and how they can continue to happen if you don't stop them. Uh, I'm your host, Christopher Wong, and... Today, we're doing part two of the interview with genocide expert Arnesa Kustra, focusing on the absolutely horrifying things that have been happening in Bosnia recently. Here's the interview. Hope you enjoy. Can can you give an explanation of what's happened in the last couple of weeks? Because it's terrifying, and I don't think enough people are talking about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's... (laughs) Where are we now? Uh, You know, I'm just going to talk briefly about the Dayton Agreement because I think yeah, yeah. the audience needs to understand <laughs> what the Dayton Agreement is. And I was going to talk about it earlier, but I went off on a tangent. So my apologies. Um, so obviously, you know, where uh, the war is happening, the genocide is happening. Um, Srebrenica, 1995, the worst of the genocide happens. You know, 8,000 people are killed in just a matter of a few weeks, few days, really. Um, the international community does not act at that time. Um, towards the end of the year, 
Another attack happens in Sarajevo and Markale. Civilians are once again targeted, waiting for bread, fruit. I think it was humanitarian aid at the uh, market. And that's kind of when the international community starts to uh, open their eyes a bit and um, negotiations start. And not to bore you with the details, the negotiation process was absolutely ridiculous. And every single time they discussed it, it was about splitting Bosnia down ethnic lines. And that's yeah. ultimately what happened with the Dayton Agreement. Yes, peace, quote unquote, peace was achieved, but the Dayton Agreement mandated so that there would be a three-member presidency. So instead of having one president, we would have a three-member presidency. It's a rotating presidency. There would be a Croat representative, a Bosniak representative, and a Serb representative. That also means that there's no representatives for anyone who's an other, whether they yeah. identify as Yugoslav, Roma, Jewish, Bosnian, but not Bosniak. Like they, you know, it's just there. There's no space for the other in this constitution, the state and peace uh, agreement. But that's for another day. Um, they also split the country down by ethnic lines. So all of those genocides and ethnic cleansing that the Serbs had just been committing all over eastern Bosnia, up in the north, um, you know, basically the international community said, good job, here's your own territory that you ethnically cleanse. Yeah. Um, so they split the country down, you know, these ethnic lines and uh, you know, the war stops and then now we have to sort of contend with this, you know, peace agreement with the new constitution. Uh, we we get this um, a called the OHR, the Office of the High Representative. The High Representative is basically a person who holds the highest power in the country. They're not a Bosnian. They're actually kind of, um, they're put in place there by the uh, international community. So the OHR kind of, you know, comes and breaks us up when we're squabbling over issues. And this has been anything from things like the flag, like the, the new flag of Bosnia. The, the flag of Bosnia that was the flag of Bosnia had to sort of be replaced because the OHR deemed that it would be, you know, offensive to the Serbs or the Croats. Um, and the same thing with like the national anthem. So they hold a lot of power. Now, just recently, we switched um, OHR representatives. So we have a new high representative. Uh, before it was Valentininsko. And his final kind of part of his you know, time as the uh, high representative was to enact a law against genocide denialism, which the Bosnians have really been campaigning for for years yeah. because, you know, um, I think in, in your birthplace, in the place where the worst crime ever could, you know, happen to you, happened to you, where, you know, 50,000 women were raped, 100,000 people were killed, um, 600 plus mass graves were, you know, dug up to hide the crimes and the massacres. Yep. People want to be able to, you know, know the truth and 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 be feel safe with the truth. So. The genocide denialism law was good, but this is kind of when things started to, you know, shift a bit because I think Dodik came out, Milana Dodik, who is currently the Serb member of the presidency, um, who controls Republika Srpska, which is the entity where that's considered the Serb entity, 
the Bosniaks also live there as well. Um, he came out and he said, well, if they pass the genocide denialism law, we're going to secede within eight days. And obviously that didn't happen. Yeah. Months ago. And here's, here's the thing. Um, Milorad Dodik has been threatening secession for years now. This is not anything new. What is new is the fact that this time he seems to talk, not just talk and threaten about seceding, but actually has started to kind of drop the papers. And not not to legally secede, which he's not allowed due to the Dayton Agreement, um, but he is he has drawn up the papers to start pulling out of all the national level. So, you know, Bosnia is the country, Republika Srpska is an entity, the Federation is an entity, but both of them are accountable to the national sort of state level institutions. He's basically at this point, you know, been saying, I'm gonna Republika Srpska the Serbs, we're leaving. Like we're we're gonna form our own army. Yeah. We're going to pull out all, all the Bosnian state institutions. Um, we're going to have Serb-only, you know, Serb-only courts, Serb-only lawyers, Serb-only justices, Serb-only, I don't know, passport, whatever, control, Serb, basically anything that was at a national level, whether that's like a healthcare institution or like, I don't know, pure procurement for supplies for the office. Yeah. They're going to have it as like Serb only. Obviously, I think the danger is is right there. Serb only. Where have we heard that before? We yep. heard that back in the 90s. And yeah. the biggest sort of red flag has really been this thing about them forming the Republika Srpska ar- army. And they're not even talking about forming a new army. They He specifically stated the words reforming the Republika Srpska army. Now, the Republika Srpska army, you know, was led by Karadzic and Mladic in the 1990s. These are the same people that put girls as young as 10 and 12 years old into rape camps, that killed babies as old as, you know, a few months, that killed, um, you know, elderly women as old as 100 years old. <laughs> you know, these these were the guys that were going village to village, city to city, killing, torturing bombing the hell out of Sarajevo. These were the guys that, you know, would throw like 3,000 to 4,000 mortar shells uh, on Sarajevo and snipe it, I don't even know how many times, like tens of thousands times per day. It's just, these are the bad guys, basically. Um, So I think there is an alarm right now going in Bosnia. And it is the reason why so many of us are quite worried, quite frightened, because on one hand, he has threatened, he has made, you know, Dodik has made plenty of threats before. Yep. But on the other hand, in prior times, the international community has somewhat gotten involved. You know, the U.S. has sanctioned him. The U.K. has scolded him. The EU has said, like, you got to chill out. Otherwise, you know, Serbia doesn't get into the EU. You know, there's there's always been some sort of, I don't know, influence there, the OHR's influence as well. But in recent years, the international community has not stood by its responsibility to the Dayton Agreement. I mean, here's the thing. They implemented this agreement. They made it so that we, the Bosnians, have to abide by it. 
but they also have a responsibility to ensure that it is actually being upheld and that they're doing their job in accordance with the international, like with the Dayton Agreement. So, you know, the Dayton Agreement was very kind of specific that it was one, a temporary solution, and two, the international community was to work on finding a more permanent solution. Yep. That will bring about, you know, actual sort of reconciliation and justice and all of these things. But they didn't. They, you know, they've left sort of Bosnia to kind of uh, live on, on its own. Um, and and now they're not really doing much. I, I mean, the EU, the US, they're doing their typical thing of strongly worded open letters. Um, and Dodik seems less afraid than ever before. He seems very brash. I mean, he is a fool and a half and an ultra-nationalist but right now I feel like he has so much confidence and I think he also knows that like the U.S. and the EU have so many bigger problems to worry about rather than Bosnia and so we're just not a priority so he can play around with it and then we're also you know seeing like the Secretary of State Matthew Palmer hanging out with him the day yeah. after this man openly stated on national television that he is reforming Republika Srpska, and they're being very cozy and very friendly and stuff like that. And here's the thing: I've never been really a, a big believer on the international community because, come on, like I have. Yeah. <laughs> the experience speaks for itself. I've already lived lived their help, and I'm like, no thanks, please stay away. But. I don't live in that world. I live in a world where, you know, I'm from a small country that is unfortunately very dependent on outsiders and on the international community. So while I would love to say, well, fuck the EU, fuck the US, we don't need them. The reality is that we do need them. We do need them to do their jobs. And because if they don't, I am really worried that the situation is going to continue to escalate further and further. and this appeasement of Dodik, especially in the yeah. last several years, has gone on so much that at this point, I think you have to like start to wonder, like, do these does the international community, you know, even want peace and stability in Bosnia, or do they benefit from our constant instability? And what is their long-term plan? So that's kind of where we're at right now. I think there, there's, you know, there's the people in in Bosnian politics and activist circles right now who are calling on U.S. leadership or calling on EU leadership. And there's a lot of, oh, no, the EU sucks. The U.S. will help us. The U.S. sucks. The EU will help us. Turkey is going to help us. No, Turkey sucks. There's a lot of, like, disagreement. Um, I think the reality is that, oh, my God, does it suck that we are in this position where we have to rely on external sources because, once again, we are feeling alone. Once again, we're sort of being backed into a corner. And once again, we're being threatened with a prospect of, you know, a new war. And I think the reality is the minute, the minute that he gives that green light for that Republican Subscott army to be formed, there will be violence. Yeah. And we've seen what happened before. We cannot afford to even have one act of violence. We cannot afford to have even one person injured, let alone die, because these people in Bosnia on all sides have suffered so unbelievably much. Yeah. They are exhausted. They are still burying their loved ones 26 years later. They still haven't, you know, found that peace. 
they're worried and scared for their future and they deserve so much more they really really do so i think you know i'm i'm hoping <laughs> and praying that um you know we obviously continue talking about this issue and we try to pressure those people in power to you know calm the situation down but the reality is that this is going to be our future for as long as Dayton exists and until the Bosnian constitution is completely reformed and Dayton yep. is completely either thrown out or reformed to actually allow for a you know co actual multi-ethnic united country that's not broken up uh, across ethnic you know uh, lines and it's not ethnically segregated we're going to continue being in the situation so Yes, for right now, I think let's talk about this and let's kind of pressure those powerful people. But really long term, it's time to start thinking about ending the Dayton Agreement and it's time to start thinking about actually building that, you know, uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious country that we fought for. You know, you're saying like, okay, like what, what, what is, you know, what, what is Europe actually wants out of this? And you know, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, like, okay, so, you know, the, the Dayton Accords are like, okay, we're just going to give all of the ethno-nationalists, like, their own fiefdom, right? It's like, okay, here, here's your award for the genocide, you get your, like, yeah, and I think, you know, like, that's, 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 that's a very classical, you know, that, that that's what Europeans do, right? It's like, yep. yeah, they come in, they support ethno-nationalists, and it's like, you know, they, they don't want this, like, they, they don't actually want, like, a a a a a functioning multi-ethnic, multiracial society because you know, oh the, oh the horror, wait, hold on. What if other people look at that and go, wait, why why do we have like yeah, and I think that I don't know. I I think you see this both, you know, back back in what they were originally doing in the nineties and you know, they come yeah. in later and are like, oh hey, look, we're heroes. We uh helped them do the genocide and then kind of sort of did something maybe later and I think, like, yeah, I don't know, the, just the, the the possibility of that happening again, the possibility of it just being, you know, this is it's like, oh, hey, we have Bosnia. This this is where we do press tours for like why the American army is good, and yeah. like fuck anyone else who actually lives there is just yeah. yeah. I mean, like, come on, they're America. Like, let's be honest here. Like, I'm not saying they're an all powerful entity, but what I am saying is that if they really wanted to. The people who are in power would not be in power, right? Like, yeah. But these people, people like Dodik, people like Dragan Čović, who is the Croatian ethno nationalist leader, who is also, by the way, directly involved in this mess. And and once again, we're seeing that thing of the '90s of you know Croatia and Serbia want to split Bosnia up and you know break it for themselves, basically. Uh, that's you know it's it's just now instead of Franjo Tuđman and Milosevic, it's now Chovic and uh, you know Dodik. I talk about Dodik a lot more because I think he's a more immediate threat. But it's important that we don't forget that Bosnia is also facing the Croatian threat as well. Um, and you know, but but I think about it this way: like I know for a fact that if these people did not benefit the system somehow, they would not actually be in power. Yeah, but they do. They do benefit them, and I think you know. You know, Madeleine Albright called Milorad Dodik a breath of fresh air. Oh, God. <laughs> um, in you know the '90s when he came to, to to power, and then and now here we are. You know. Yep. 
um, thought they were threatening war and threatening secession and talking about Serb-only, you know, spaces and Serb-only armies. And it's just, oh, it's exhausting. But yeah, it's, it's, it's also funny. It is funny when you think about it because the reality is that it doesn't, it never had to be like this and it doesn't have to be like this in the future either. But unfortunately, it will continue to be like this because that's just, you know, what the powerful want, like what those actually who have some power want. And that's the thing that sucks because when you, you know, I feel like I'm starting to sound conspiratorial, but I'm not. <laughs> um, you know, when you when you think about like Europe overall and how they looked at Bosnia, I think, for the last, you know, 100 years um, and their policy towards Bosnia, it's really difficult for me to kind of be filled with any sort of confidence about what their plans are, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's Europe and the United States, two countries that historically have never done anything bad, have never done any genocides and have never, yeah, just absolutely annihilated countries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, they're the good guys. So like you said, you know, Bosnians there so much as like this press tour for, you know, these politicians to come and to talk about why we're such a great example of the peace process when we're really, we're not, you know? And the thing is, you know, they'll come on and they'll say, well, while Dayton wasn't perfect, it was the best solution at the time. And it's like, it it wasn't, it was not. Yeah. You know, but but they have convinced that themselves that this was like a win for intervention and win for the international community. Now, don't get me wrong. I, alongside everyone I know, is extremely happy that the war ended and that the genocide yeah. ended. Um, and I think until you're in that position of growing up in the midst of, you know, all these bombs and murders and tortures all around you and, you know, the only sound you ever hear are the sounds of bombs and mortars falling and snipers shooting at you. You won't really know how it feels when that finally stops and when you have some peace and how difficult um, it can be to think about, obviously, any future sort of prospects of war. Um, and I think that's that also is a, is a contributing factor to the overall instability of Bosnia because for 26 years now, our policy as a people, but as a country as well, has been as long as there's no shooting, which is not a sound policy because, you know, settling for the bare minimum is not helping any of us. Our youths are leaving in absurd, absurd amounts to Germany, to Austria, to yep. the United States. People are struggling for, for jobs. People are struggling to find food, you know, all of these things. Um, on top of the threat of war and violence and conflict. So it's just, it's not a sound policy and I'm just hoping um, it will change eventually somehow. I mean, I'm going to keep doing my part, which is, yeah. you know, yelling and yelling at people in, in their, uh, on Twitter and in person and pressuring them to do the right thing and to obviously talk about this. But um yeah, I, I just feel like we have such a long, 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 long road ahead of us. And, um, you know, peace is a process. It's, it's a process. So I think we're just at the beginning of that process. Okay. Yeah. So much more to do. I think, I think that's a good place to end on with 
just the, the 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 realization that yeah i mean if 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 there's no fundamental change in the structures and the forces and in the politics that created a war that created a genocide like it's going to happen again and so you 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 have to actually change it. You can't just sort of put this band-aid on it and put it in stasis and just leave all the structures intact. You have to you know, you, you have to knock them over before you can build something else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well Anessa, thank thank you so much for talking with me. Um where can people find you and what books do you want to read? Because as 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 we've said over and over again on this podcast, do not get your information from podcasts. Actually, read books. <laughs> this is the thing you need. What you need to do. Um, yeah. Well, if you obviously, I know our audience can't see it, but here's my little one of my little selections of books on Bosnia. <laughs> um, obviously, people can find me on Twitter. Um, you know, type in my name A R N E S A, but my at is at R R R R N E S S A. Yeah, Twitter's probably the best place. But uh, also, I have a book out, so if people want to read it, it is about the Bosnian genocide, um, and it is based on real-life experiences of my family and friends. It's called Letters from Diaspora. It's more so on the emotional um, side of things. Uh, But if you want to learn about the conflict, uh, from a leftist perspective, I always recommend, um, and I don't know where it's going now, but... I always recommend um, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Yugoslavia by uh, Mike Karadijis. Um, it's the Marxist perspective on the breakup of Yugoslavia. Um, additionally, I have a PDF on my Twitter of tons of books. So if you want to learn more about Yugoslavia, about Islam in the Balkans, about the history of Bosnia, about the war genocide, feel free to just shoot me a DM. I have a handy little guide that I hand out constantly to people. Um, and there's also a list of books on like my website and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I can post it. We can put a link to it in the description. I've, I've read some stuff on there. It's very good. You should read it. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I pride myself on, you know, <laughs> really good reading lists. Yeah. Depending on topic. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Anessa, thank you again. Um, yeah, this this has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, find us at It Could ha- Happen Here pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, the rest of the shows that we do are, you can find it at the Cool Zone on the same places. And yeah, oh boy. Genocide bad. Hope there's no more work to stop them. <laughs>Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com sources. Thanks for listening. Raffi is the voice of some of the happiest songs of our generation. Baby Beluga. So who is the man behind Baby Beluga? Every human being wants to feel respected. When we start with young children, all good things can grow from there. I'm Chris Garcia, comedian, new dad, and host of Finding Raffi. 
a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Fatherly. Listen every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls. You know, they don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. I just walked in and saw this bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko. Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of money. I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things. It was incredible amounts of money. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud starting February 1st on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Robert Sex Reese, host of the Dr. Sex Reese Show. And every episode, I listen to people talk about their sex and intimacy issues, and yes, I despise every minute of it. I yeah. mean, she, she made mistakes too, right? That's I mean, true. She, she did she, kill everyone at her wedding. But hell is real, we're all trapped here, and there's nothing any of us can do about it. So join me, won't you? Listen to the Dr. Sex Re Show every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good but be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.